Right, guys we're cutting the intro a little bit short tonight because she drives me crazy man my wife sent in my lunch last sunday after the podcast <laughs> with my son and we you know we always screw around mess around on the mics for a minute and he left my lunch on the, the podcast table for a week there's all kind of mold and stuff who's who <laughs> left the lunch i i didn't know he was with it or he had it is it monday's work lunch it would have been monday's work lunch but i ended up going to the store to buy shitty bodega food Jojo's, yeah, man, or otherwise known as potato wedges. No, in no, other parts no. I of didn't the go. Country. I didn't go to that joint. I didn't go to City Foods. I went to uh, the Standard Market, man. But oh man, hey, we got a good guest tonight. We are running a little bit late, so we're going to cut this first segment a little bit short. But tonight's show is being brought to us live by Predator Fly Gear. Check them out at PredatorFlyGear.com. Hey, Rex Hooks, it's that time of the year. You're getting ready to get into stripers. They got saltwater hooks. Doesn't matter what you're for. Freshwater, saltwater. Find them at AirXHooks.com. Sims Fishing Products. Hey, tonight's show is being recorded live from the Urban Fly Company studios. Check Mark out at UrbanFlyCompany.com. Yeti, built for the wild. Queen City Guiding. Check out Ryan Evans. He can provide a fabulous upstate New York fishing experience. Check him out. Oh, man, we got some. We're going to be going to his wedding here pretty soon. I can't wait to. Did I say upstate? He'll take you anywhere in New York. Actually, <laughs> yeah, man. he's about that. Life. I can't wait to talk about that after uh, after his wedding. But uh, check out Why Not Fishing and their app, The Dock. Yeah, go figure. That's a dance recital. Yeah, I know. Ash was like, I wish Amy was going. I was like, yeah, well, she's not. Guess what? <laughs> you get to deal with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just because. Yeah, now those... she got to take a date. You. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> just what she doesn't want. <laughs> For those of you who know me, we're going to raise a glass today. So tell your buddies you love them. You never know. Exactly, man. I hear you, bud. And thank you. Uh, this is for Bill. Yep. So, um, other than that, Debbie Downer. I'm sorry, Mark. No, no, I didn't mean to be Debbie nope. Downer, but yeah. it, it is. I, it hurts. I had to get it out there, but it's just that's a tough one. It's a tough pill to swallow and lose a friend under 40. It's tough. It is. It is. So that that really sucks and it hurts. So, and I'm I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a rough one for me today, but we'll get through and let's talk about fishing. Tonight's gonna be freaking good. Yeah, All man. of our little <laughs> babies that we get to pierce the lips of every day, we get to talk to the guy that raises them for us yeah man and there's so much of this information and we've all got to learn through fat az podcast and thanks to them guys for having jared on before but this is a gem but it's for our me, turn to do it tonight i'm, I'm <laughs> stoked we actually get to talk to jared who raises all of our muskies in pa and he's oh. right on our big lake and he doesn't just do the muskies he does, he does uh, everything he does catfish um, oh trout every, yeah trout the walleyes steelhead. steelhead he does the lake erie a lot of the fish are well yeah walleyes a lot of people don't realize you yeah, have all the walleyes running to mommy, but then it's not all just because of that. A lot of them, Jared puts in there too. Exactly. And he's learned how to do it. I mean, we're going to get into more in depth, but he's learned how to feed these muskies and make it affordable for us so that we can keep. We don't have natural reproduction here. 
So a lot of people kind of, you know, I mean, I was one too. When I first started in a muskie, I was a stickler that, oh, you don't fish for fish on the spawn and you don't do that. And that's, that's always the case. And don't ever think, you know, aside of that. But where we're at, them fish don't spawn. We're in an area where it just doesn't happen. So it's going to be nice for Jared to explain to us why that doesn't happen because it's, it's true and we realistically get less than 2% of natural reproduction here. So 98% of them fish, they're all put in by the, where he's at. And there's, there's a couple other local things that have been going on that are going to be super interesting to talk to him about and what he thinks the outcomes are going to be from uh, these local events that have happened. Yep. So if you're not from PA, you're still going to learn some stuff. But if you're from PA, really crank your radios, dude. If you're not from PA, you're probably already smarter than the people from PA. <laughs> yeah, that, that's no shit. <laughs> I live in Ohio. See, I got you beat. You do. <laughs> By three minutes. So, guys, uh, hey, I think, get we should, on. I think we should get going and uh, give old Jared a call. What do you guys think? All righty. Back in a flash. Good story about this song. And we are back with Jared Sayers, the hatchery manager at the Linesville Fish Hatchery. What is going on, man? How you doing tonight? Hey, I'm doing great. Had a wonderful day outside getting some sunshine, and I'm excited to talk to you guys. Oh, man, it was the nicest day of the year so far, I'd say. First day of spring, right? Uh, yesterday was, because it's okay. my grandmother's birthday. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was great. So, so Jared, um, hey, can you... Give us a little bit of background. What What is your job title, and what do you do on a day to day basis? All right, my I'm I'm the hatchery manager for the Linesville Fish Hatchery. So that's being one of our very few warm water uh, facilities within the state. So we do get involved in some of the steelhead raising and some brown trout just for the Lake Erie streams, but that means that I'm involved in the the entire uh, purebred muskie program. We do channel catfish, we do largemouth bass, we do all kinds of panfish species for restocking dams around the state. Um, so my day-to-day operation changes <clears throat> every few weeks starting, you know, in the end of March. So we're getting ready to ramp up. We're going to be setting nets this coming week, starting to take some walleye eggs for this year. And we don't slow down until the 4th of July when, once we get going. So. Um, every couple of weeks we're doing something different. It's always changing. It's always something new to learn. We get short periods to learn things. So we're always trying new stuff. Um, I've got the best job in the world. It just never gets old. Um, <laughs> and it's, I thank my lucky stars every day. I get to get up out of bed and be excited to go to work. No, you knew you can tell because it just, it, it stems into all of us fishermen that fish in the state, uh, how much we appreciate what you do, but what is the easiest fish? Is it like a is it channel cat? Is it largemouth bass? What's the easiest one for you to raise? Well, they all have their challenges. Um, like I said, we do do we get involved with the trout somewhat. So the trout are definitely the easiest because they they're excited to eat. They're just like having a, a goldfish in a bowl. You know, as long as you keep them healthy and throw food at them, they'll they'll get bigger. Imagine that. Uh, you know, but as far <laughs> as the warm water species go, you know, they've all got their quirks. You know, the muskies are definitely the hardest. Um, and I'd say uh, the channel cats are probably the easiest, but um, I say that with a caveat because they, they, they have their own challenges. You know, they're susceptible to a lot of diseases, so we have to keep them really clean and keep a close eye on them. 
uh, stuff like that. So, so every well, I guess, different species has its own quirks and things that we have to work on. Why do you stock as many channel catfish as you do? That's a great question. One of the most popular questions, you know, when I take, when I give people a hatchery tour, you know, and I tell them we raise channel catfish, they say, you know, why do you stock channel catfish? Aren't they just everywhere? And come to find out, you know, after people ask me that question, I researched it a little bit too, because I wanted to have a good answer. Um, they're not everywhere. You know, they've been in Pennsylvania forever. You know, they, and they're natural in the big rivers and things like that. But um, way back in the day, we would trade exhausted species that Pennsylvania has always been kind of known for. You know, we'd raise muskies or northern pike or something like that and trade them to other states and get channel catfish fingerlings and stocked them in inland lakes all over Pennsylvania for all, you know, all through the 70s and early 80s. And even after all that, as late as 1985, Parmatuning Reservoir is the only inland lake that had natural reproduction of channel catfish. You know, they were all sustained by stocking even way back then. Huh. You know, obviously so, the river still did good and stuff. Um, but now, you know, our latest um, channel catfish management plan, we're up to like 36 or 38 inland lakes that have natural reproduction. So with we're trying to keep the stocking going to keep the fisheries good. And we're trying to work with our habitat guys to put structures in these lakes that can support, you know, better natural reproduction of them. And as a lake takes over for natural reproduction, we move those resources other places because i like to see the channel catfish thing get really popular because i think they're a good way to grow the sport too i think kids can catch them you go out there you throw a nightcrawler under a bobber and you have fun they they fight good they're easy they're great to eat you know i think it's a great thing to promote you know so when we went... before covid took over we were starting to head that direction because we were starting to have you know channel catfishing festivals around the state of different <laughs> we'd stock a lake and then have two or three hundred people show up and show them how to fish for them, show them how to clean them, show them how to cook them. And then we tell them, hey, this lake down the road also has great channel catfish fishing, so go try out what you learned. You know, it's a great way to grow the sport and also, you know, show people what we're doing. So, I mean, obviously, like, them and flatheads have a big difference. In where, I mean, flathead's more of, like, a forage base. They're going to hammer, like, bluegills and live bait. But I've also caught a lot of channel cats busting shad and, you know, getting up there and eating. Do do the channel cats really fight for a lot of that bait fish, or where what's their mainstay for eating? I think you would. I think the answer to that's going to be different, and no matter what body of water they're in. So, in a lot of these lakes, you know, around you guys that have got the recent gizzard shad introductions, you know, I think the channel cats are really targeting on those. I think early spring, you know, my kids really love. Um, targeting channel cats down in Pomatuning in the early spring. And, you know, a whole fresh shad is the only way to go if you want to catch big ones. You can go down there with pieces of chicken or whatever and catch channel cats all day long, but the big ones are definitely keying on channel cat or on gizzard shad. And I think that's true in Shenango Reservoir and also Lake Arthur. So, um, you know, in other places where the gizzard shad haven't been introduced, you know, maybe they're still in their more of their, their scavenger you know, looking for dead fish or soft raid fish, things like that. Whereas the flatheads definitely, you know, their favorite is bluegills. So um, they seem a little bit, you know, every fish has a, uh, a fish, a target species that they really enjoy. But I think that's largely determined on what the prey base is made up of the water they're in. So you've mentioned the gizzard shad being introduced. They're, yep. they're not native to this area? 
No, they shouldn't be here at all. Okay. Um, and it's a shame that they were introduced. You know, they, they provide a lot of forage. You know, they grow the fish fast. But the problem is in the lakes they've been introduced, they're so prolific that the fish don't get hungry. You know what I mean? On years where, you know, after a good winter like this, hopefully we'll see a good gizzard shad die off and a good alewife die off. And then the fishing will be hopefully. good. But when we go two, three years in a row with a very mild winter, and we don't get a shad die off and the shad die off because they're not you know this is at the northern end of the range they can't handle those temperature swings like that they know they're not supposed to be here but because they are when we get those big temperature swings or a long hard winter and then it warms up fast the gizzard shad will die off and then we'll get you know we'll have really good reports of fishing but when that gizzard shad population and the alewife population stays really high you know fishing gets tough the fish just aren't hungry so I don't want to dive too much into the musky side of things yet because once we get started, I know we're never going to leave. But getting <laughs> on to the gizzard chat thing, one thing I want to hit on is Wilhelm. I know with Wilhelm, the gizzard chat, and it's it's last I last I read it was seven to one, and I pay a lot of attention to this, and I've seen how you guys have studied pimey over the years and got it down to one to one, where Shenango's at, and then there's also all wives coming in. But at Wilhelm, I know you haven't introduced the, the wipers yet which has helped keep that shad at a manageable level in Shenango and Arthur and what have you. Is it true, or are we going to essentially just keep instituting more and more muskies into Wilhelm to try to keep that shad down rather than instituting the, the wipers? Um, I don't think so. I think um, are you gonna, I, I guess should you say, are you going to – I guess should you say – We're stocking um, – that's the one water body where we've been stocking largemouth bass. Uh, fingerlings and yearlings, advanced fingerlings, um, above and beyond what we normally would. So normally we don't stock largemouth bass to try to create a fishery because they reproduce so well on their own. It's more of a managing the habitat and stuff to create a good largemouth bass fishery. Um, but Wilhelm, we were trying to augment that a little bit to see if we could raise the population enough to control the gizzard chad. Um, we're still in the process of evaluating how that's going, um, but that's something we wanted to try there. It's likely we'll have to end up going with the hybrids um, if that doesn't work. The muskies, um, you know, have never proven to be a really good species to help us control bait fish populations. They're just not aggressive enough. You know, it's the same answer that I would give somebody that was a, that's worried that the muskies are going to ruin their walleye fishing because they're going to eat all the walleyes. It just doesn't work that way. They're not that. They're not a a fish that's going to go out there and eat 10 fish in a day, you know, as they're, when they're small, they're going to eat two minnows a day. When they're, you know, a little bit bigger, they're going to eat one perch a day. When they're a little bit bigger, they're going to eat one sucker a day. And when they get huge, they're going to eat one three pound carp a day. If, if that, you know what I mean? They might eat one big fish every three days. Um, they're just not out there eating dozens and dozens of fish every day. They're not that, you know, they're more size oriented rather than trying to fill their stomachs by eating a bunch of small fish. So essentially, at the end of the day, you know, the, the the real answer to it is it's almost inevitable. We're going to have to put wipers in Wilhelm. Yep. I mean, I know I've fished that lake a bunch. I know a lot of people that do, and it's kind of one of them things where if you want to put your time in, you're probably going to see a muskie like you've never seen, but you may go a couple years before you see it. Yeah, and I that's hope a that's hard lake. Change. I mean, I didn't mean to be discouraging about no, the muskie population because it, it's you know, got we're good definitely fish. not going to try raise, putting more muskies in there to control the gizzard shot because that just doesn't isn't something that's going to work. But we definitely 
the get the musky population there is definitely something we're working on and we definitely would like to see you know those catch rates tripled and since we have hybrids on the brain here's a, a question i had asked you uh off air in uh the text message as i sent you about hybrids um our Shenango river it doesn't get stocked anymore but we we still catch them where where do you think they're coming from? Are they coming from the lake? Or are they coming upstream from another river? What, what do yeah, you? Yeah, they they could be running upstream. That's definitely an option that I can't disprove. But I would say it's based on what we see everywhere else. I'd say it's very likely they're coming out of the Shenango Reservoir. So, um, but with that being most, said, there's no most way of these reservoirs that we stock, like Tynesta Lake, Lake Arthur, Shenango, Pymie. You know, one of our greatest challenges is getting these fish to stay in the reservoir we're trying to stock them in and what you see is the spillways beneath all these reservoirs end up being really good fishing for the particular species that we're stocking in there so the musky fishing below piney is phenomenal the, you know the musky fishing below lake arthur is phenomenal the musky fishing below tynesta is phenomenal you know and i think where we stock wherever we stock hybrids at we also see them below the dam. So my guess would be that that's where they're coming from. So whenever you find like a small one, though, even though if they're running up, there's no chance that that hybrid's actually reproducing, though. It's, it's almost no chance. I mean, they a hybrid is almost always sterile. You know, there has been small um, studies where we've shown that, you know, saw guy can back reproduce with a walleye. So we, that's why we stopped stocking them. So, you know, a hybrid should not be able to reproduce. They, they're certainly not going to do it well enough to sustain a fishery or anything like that, or even sustain the population for a long period of time. Um, but it's not, it's not impossible. You know, that if a, if a male hybrid straight bass tried to breed with a white bass, I mean, could one out of a million survive? It's possible. Um, very unlikely, though. So, so you're saying there's a chance. The other thing we're seeing is there is people stocking, you know, without our knowledge. So, you know, we've seen white perch pop up in places they shouldn't be, you know, like pommy tuning. They're starting to grow. Mm. Or chain pickerel. put them there. For the love of God, stop putting chain pickerel in creeks. They have pike in them. <laughs> right. What and is the deal with that? We've also seen small hybrids in pommy tuning, you know, um, since we've stopped bringing them into the Linesville hatchery. So there's no way they could have even just been escapees. You know, there's, somebody's putting them in there. Hey, Jared, speaking of that, how can someone tell the difference between a small hybrid and a white bass? Um, it's very difficult. The only way to do it for sure is the tongue patches. Um, if you look at their tongue, you know, uh, a white bass is only going to have one tongue patch in the back of its tongue right in the center, and the hybrids will have two. And it's very easy to see, and it's always consistent. Okay. Um, and, hey, this leads me into another whole group of questions. But how detrimental is it to a fish to come through a spillway? <laughs> you know what I mean? How like, does it happen? Think, yeah, I mean, a lot more than it is because they seem to like, seem live to pretty like well. You, you know, <laughs> I, growing up my entire life, I thought, like, there was something a in cutter? there chomping, uh, chomping fish when they'd come through. I, I guess that's not the case. No, it's not at all. There's, they have screen structures down there, and um, some reservoirs have bigger screen structures than the other ones do, so bigger fish can make it through. But it's just a 
you know, after they go through that screen, it's just a large pipe, you know, they can just swim right through. Um, and, you know, a funny story, as you're saying that, as you think about that, we have the same problem at our hatcheries, you know, anywhere we have pumps bringing in water, we actually bring in fish. And that is, you know, there is a very small impeller in those pumps spinning at a very high rate of speed. And we bring in, you know, two inch fish. I have no idea how they make it through there. They're, they're like octopus. <laughs> no, they watch their buddies get shot. I always teach my young fish culturists that, you know, because at a hatchery, we spend a lot of time setting up screens and, you know, raceways and ponds and um, trying to keep fish where we want to keep fish. But I, I tell them all the time, if water can make it through, a fish can make it through, no matter how illogical it'll be that they could fit through there. It's like Frogger, the six one in line learned the algorithm, and he's like, "All right, I can make this. I'm going to get up through there now that them six died in front of me. I got to wait this time, this time, this time. Boom, shoot it!" <laughs> right. The Matrix. So, Jared, um, we've just had kind of an anomaly happen in Western Pennsylvania with a uh, Woodcock Creek Lake. Um, yeah, that was strange. It was. It it was strange, and like I said, I'm I'm not so much worried about why it happened, but I'm more worried about the what's going to happen from this. Um, do we know, do, do we have any idea of like the fish mortality? Did they go through the spillway or what, what do we think happened? Yeah. So there's a few things we don't know for sure yet is we don't know for sure how far it got drawn down. You know, the early pictures that I saw sure looked like it was empty. Um, but when yeah, we <laughs> got those pictures, we investigated right away. Um, I've talked to several of our own personnel that were there looking. Um, by that time, there was about a 10-acre pool of water, on, you know, in the lake. Hmm. So a little lower than the 350 and normal. Got, it's possible that you know some fish stayed in there, and that's what we're going to hope for. We're going to hope that there's some smallmouth bass and some muskies and some walleyes and stuff in there that, and some forage species that the lake, once it fills back up. You know, obviously there's not going to be great populations right away, but there might be enough that after a season of spawning, you know, we could see some rebound right away. Um, we did not see any dead fish in the mud, even after the um, the ice that was covering that area melted. We got out there right away because we wanted to see that. We didn't see any dead fish at all, um, which leads me to believe, you know, most of them went through the, through the dam and into the creek. Um, eventually got flushed down to French Creek with all that high flow, obviously. Um, there wasn't any dead fish. We walked the entire length of Woodcock Creek from the dam all the way to French Creek. There wasn't any dead fish there. So anything that did go through made it to French Creek and was, you know, doing great. Um, so from here, you know, we have to wait till the lake fills back up. We have our, our hatchery crews that usually go in there looking targeting male muskies very early in the spring to make tiger muskies up at the Union City Hatchery. So they'll be the first ones in there, and that'll give us our first reports on what the fish populations are looking like. And then our biologists have also scheduled um, some later trap netting surveys and some electroshocking surveys, you know, throughout this year to get in there and see what the, the bass populations look like and stuff like that. So, so I... we'll know a lot more, you know, as this year progresses. I, I do have a question for you about French Creek. Now, mm -hmm. since everyone knows French Creek has a, a very wide uh, variety of uh, different species of fish, and if it did get flushed in um, with an influx of predators like the smallmouth bass and the walleye and the muskie from, from the lake, 
what is going to happen to all the the prey species? Are we going to see a decrease in the amount of prey species in French Creek since there's so many more predators? Right. You know, uh, locally, localized, you know, you might see a little bit of that for a short period of time, but I think those fish are going to spread out pretty quickly. Um, I think the fish are going to be probably pretty good if you've, you know, you know, five or six big holes up upstream or downstream from that confluence. I think there'll be some pretty good fishing this spring. Um, but after, you know, a few months, I think things will balance out and things will, they'll swim around and, um, Obviously, they're going to seek out areas that have better, you know, forage bases. And the thing to remember about French Creek is it is so big, you know. So when you talk about the total acreage of French Creek, you're talking about, you know, something, you know, half as big as a Great Lake. You know, it's it's gigantic. So you're not going to you're not going to overpopulate or underpopulate um, a system that's that large um, on an event like this. So, and that is you know, a... in a very, you know, two or three holes with all those walleye coming into them, obviously anything that's edible, they're going to eat it up. But, you know, after a few months, things are going to swim around and balance back out. It's not going to cause any long-term damage, that's for sure. I guess you answered my question I was going to ask there, but how will, like, an influx of so many predators affect a fishery like that? Yeah, in the long term, it won't affect it at all. I mean, but, I mean, obviously – you know, if you went fishing as soon as the walleye season opens in some big holes, you know, you might find some hungry fish because they might have decimated the, the, you know, the forage species in that area short term. But long term, I don't think it'll have any effect at all. In of, of the three predator species that we mentioned, the smallmouth, the walleye, and the muskie, are you saying that the walleye are the more voracious eaters? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I guess... Largemouth bass are obviously, or smallmouth bass are obviously a voracious predator. Um, I've, I guess I'm focusing on the walleyes because I just happen to know there was a giant year class of walleyes <laughs> and woodcock that just survived. Yeah, I was so excited to see what they turned into. They would have been right now. They'll be in that 12 to 14 inch range. Oh, they would have um, been perfect. And they, it was the best survival year we've we've ever documented. <laughs> it was so exciting. Um, so that's kind of heartbreaking, but. Um, so do you take it personal when something like this happens, you know, cause you, know, you spend so much time bit. with you, the fish. You, you try not to, you know, cause, but you know, I, that's where it really gets me excited these days is I used to get excited about, you know, the actual work at the hatchery. And now I, I'm more focused on how our, our work at the hatchery affects the enjoyment of others, you know, and when I see a huge survival year on walleyes in any given water, it gets me really excited. And then I start anytime I see, you know, a Daryl black fishing report come out. I, I can't wait to get into that thing and see who's catching what, where, and Oh, those are our fish. Oh, I knew that population was going to be good. Oh, okay. This one's not that great. We got to work on that. You know, that, that kind of stuff thinking about that is really enjoyable. Um, so it, it certainly is important, you know, disappointing. And, but the Corps of engineers has been very clear over the years that, you know, they're going to manage their water the way they want to manage the water. And, you know, fishing is like ninth or 10th down the list of their priorities. So oh, that's all um, I thought it was like, we just kind of have 30. to work with what we can work with. And um, it, it can be frustrating at times, but it is what it is. So it's like when they blow out the gandy right during peak spawning seasons, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I don't know what you're talking about, but <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't hurt. So do you, 
Do you treat this like insider trading? Like if you know a, a lake has a good year class coming up, will you tell your tell your buddies, hey, go up there and uh, tell me what's going on? Will you tell Andy from the the AZ podcast? Hey, go I'll catch tell anybody I can get a hold of. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I want people to go enjoy them. You know, like that's what we're here for. If people, well, in in return, you know, we we as an agency, you know, look at that kind of stuff. So if we're stocking walleyes in a water body and there's even if and there's biologists going out there and surveying them and there's a great population but nobody's fishing for them then we either have to advertise it better or we need to stock those fish somewhere where people are fishing for them because that's another piece of the puzzle is you know getting people you know putting the fish not only where they live and we can make a good fishery but where people are going to actually can access them you know where boat ramps are prevalent at where you know if something's all private you know, if it's a hard lake to get on, then it doesn't do us any good to make a great fishery there. So it has to, we want to put our resources where it's going to make the most bang for the anglers. We want people to enjoy the fish. Well, Jared, you have my phone number now, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of that, you had, um, oh, you got something, Mark? Yeah, I got something too. And I'm going to be very blunt with it too. Is, I mean, obviously the PA Fish and Boat Commission is, we all know and living in Pennsylvania, is the wealthiest organization in Pennsylvania. At what point do we tell the U.S. Army Corps just to go pound salt? I mean, because at this, I mean, they have literally ran a lot of our fisheries to the nth degree when we've all worked and tried to progress them and make them better. But the Army Corps has done everything in their power to make sure that these, and like you said, we're ninth or tenth down the line. I mean, at what point can we can we just step up, or what do we need to do? And you know, is everybody listening to this that lives in Pennsylvania? What can we do to make an effect on the Army Corps to just tell you, this is bullshit. Quit doing what you're doing. I mean, I know yeah. that feeding the water in the Ohio River is one thing, and I get that. And you can pump as many damn boats up as that as you want. Go pound salt with that, too. But at the end of the day, recreation's recreation. We're pumping tons of money into this, too, for fishing. We're all spending, I mean, there's millions of dollars being pumped into these licenses that is blown down the drain by the Army Corps. They don't give two craps. At what point or what do we need to do as Pennsylvanians and as fishermen to stick it back to the Army Corps a little bit? Yeah, I wish I had an answer for you, but, you know, they're a, they're a federal agency and um, their main priority is regulating water, you know, and, yeah. and it, you know what it, I mean? it blows my mind. Like, this event wouldn't even have happened except they were doing a planned drawdown to so they could... Um, because the weather in the upcoming weeks, like we're seeing today, was going to be really warm, and they wanted to be able to handle all the extra runoff. And that's stupid. But there was no, there was no snow. Nothing. <laughs> like, I can. It's like they, you can plug the numbers into a formula, and you, you see what you're supposed to do in the textbook. But at some point, you got to be able to look out the window and say, "Well, there's no snow. We don't have to worry about that this year, right?" Yeah. Well, I mean, will they take a preconceived notion of what's going to happen without any knowledge of what is actually happening? In myself, I run a business that's going to be essentially building. Into more, and I'm not going to get into it because we're going to be talking about that down the road. But I'm fighting locally with people going, Well, we want to bring money into here, and I'm saying, I'm not going to help you because of the Army Corps. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with our county, absolutely, it does because the Army Corps stops us from doing everything. The Army Corps has their own mind and their own agenda and plan, it has nothing to do with anything you care about. We have a waterway that is put here for us to use. And the Army Corps has no agenda whatsoever for that. Their one thing and one thing only is to ship 
freaking boats up that damn Ohio River, and they don't care about nothing else. And at the end of the day, that's horse crap because we have a perfect fishery. We have 17 of them. We have 17 fisheries that feed the Ohio River, and the only thing they care about is shipping barges up that stupid Ohio River. <laughs> and I know I'm yeah, going to be blunt with it because I'm pissed about it. I'm really it's pissed one of those about things it. Where the fish and boat commissions had, you know, and any matter of any different matter of issues has had discussions with the Army Corps of Engineer, and they are not shy about it at all. They no. tell us right to our faces. We do not care about the fishing. And you know what? Manage the waters. As far as I'm concerned, they can take that MMC or the MMC and shove it up their ass. They can have their <laughs> marine merchant certificate. They can keep it. We'll go on other water that doesn't require it. That's bull crap. It's uncalled for. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, and then but, the point, you know, to get back to what you were originally asking, though, is like, you know. Not that we've really thought about it, but, you know, you could say, well, what if we don't put all our resources back into that building woodcocked up to what it was? You know, if there, if this is a danger, do we really want to put walleyes back into there and risk it being flushed out again? Yeah. But the problem is, I mean, that makes perfect sense in the, you know, in a practical standpoint. But the other point is there, there's a lot of people that enjoy it. There's bait shops around there that enjoy it. There's campgrounds around that enjoy it. And there's a whole community know, around that, can, that lake. You know, we certainly don't want to disenfranchise a whole group of people because it's because of the core either, you know? So, you know, the right thing to do is to say, you know, we'll work with the core and let them know our, our ideas and what we want. But at the end of the day, they're going to do what they're going to do. And we're going to adjust accordingly and try to make things best for the anglers as we can, you know, that's, yep that's all that's left <laughs> hey, hey jared getting on a, a different subject that you had briefly mentioned in a in passing is mm -hmm. you didn't want to build up fisheries that didn't have access to them mm -hmm. um i saw earlier uh two weeks ago you you've like went around to different groups on facebook asking where different boat launches should be put or what should be done mm -hmm. did you get any uh any beneficial information from that like yeah yeah it was helpful you know i i kind of did that as just a kind of a feeler survey because um yeah i'm part of a, a a boating access committee for the fish and boat commission so there's a whole there, it's going to be developed over this whole the course of the next year on how to best target the money to get the best fishing access and get the most bang for the anglers you know where do we how do what metrics do we use to decide where we need to put these things you know and i kind of wanted to you know, and there's going to be the anglers and boaters of Pennsylvania are going to get, you know, surveys sent to them throughout this process. So, so I just kind of wanted, that was just for my own knowledge to kind of get me thinking about, you know, the right types of issues heading into the, our initial meeting. And it was very helpful. You know, I think, um, you know, kayaking is becoming really, really popular and, you know, getting some extra you know, kayak ramps, you know, so we're even some educational, you know, boards and stuff so you know kayakers tend to be a new it's new and exciting and they come in and it might be their first time launching any type of boat out of water and they don't know you know as they pull up in their van and they're unloading eight kayaks for their whole family to go in there their whole they don't realize that that's the only place on that lake for boats to get into you know so if we had a, a kayak ramp where they could 
you know, there was additional parking for kayaks and, you know, it was easy for them to pull in on a primitive launch, you know, that would keep the boat traffic moving, you know, it's things that people haven't even thought of before. So I guess with that being said, I mean, we have, we're fortunate here that we have a lot of natural lakes too. Five, mm-hmm. six, seven that we can think of offhand that and is it maybe worth maybe even funneling a little bit of the money to them rather than the Army Corps side of things so that they're able to be controlled a little bit better. <coughs> yeah, that's true. You know, and there's a there's gonna be a lot of money available for boating access. You know, it's gonna be handled mostly through like a grant program. So identifying, you know, people like you know, French Creek canoe outfitters or something like somebody that's willing, that's got a little bit of skin in the game um, and they're willing to put up a little bit of money, then the Fish and Boat Commission will put in some money and, you know, you know, that'll take a limited amount of money and turn it into a giant amount of money and get a lot more, a lot more accesses done. So, um, well, speak- I'm really hopeful that there's going to be some good things that come from it. Speaking of of money, how has the um, new program with the volunteer, you know, licensing, whether it be the the muskie or the bass or the trout, or I mean, how has that worked out so far with the state? Yeah, I think it's worked out better than a lot of people envisioned it would. Good, good. Um, it wasn't it wasn't ever intended to be this huge money gain, you know what I mean? But there was, you know, um, back when we were working to get a license increase and that's not something anybody wants to do is increase license sales we're just kind of behind the eight ball and it's the only thing left to be able to try to you know keep keep things going the way they're going without the the fishermen seeing decreases you know um so that you know putting those voluntary permits without was something that we could do on our own we didn't need special permission to do it and um it was a way for the anglers to say you know, we enjoy what you're doing. Here's a, a couple more dollars out of my wallet to keep doing what you're doing, especially for this species that I, I care about, you know. So, and that's what was really neat about it is that the anglers kind of showed up and said, yes, I do care about bass habitat and I want you to do more of it. So here's 10 bucks, you know, and they've sold great and they've done really well. You know, the first year we got about $16,000 for the muskie permit. In the second year, we got $32,000 for the muskie permit. So, That's you awesome. Know, it's not earth-shattering money, but it certainly helps. I mean, it's going to – and since we only want to use it on muskie stuff, you know, it, that definitely helps around a hatchery that's already tight on the budget to be able to, you know, buy some new things that, that are going to help that program. You know, last year we put in a brand-new hot water heater that's only going to heat water for that muskie program rather than using the, the big boiler that – is also used to heat the building, and when we turn a valve for the channel catfish, it affects the muskies. Now, they'll have their own water source, and we're we'll able to keep them at ideal temperatures and growing even better than we have in the past. So, That's so you cool. know, it's helping everybody, and it's working the way it's supposed to work, and, you know, it's kind of exciting. Awesome. So, like Mark had mentioned earlier, when we get into muskie, we're going to, you know, get into the muskie. But um, this, the bass habitat stamp, what... What does that go for? I'm just to enlighten us. <laughs> I mean, what 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 are they looking to improve for the bass habitat? So, like I mentioned earlier, um, we you know when we look at a certain lake, you know we don't really raise bass at the hatcheries and then go stock them in a lake to try to get the population up. We do raise a lot of bass at the hatcheries, but mostly those are going towards new impoundments so we can get the predator 
prey relationship balanced out early on in the, as that lake is filling is generally what we're raising bass for. Um, we don't have a large scale stocking program of largemouth bass because they survive really well and they reproduce really well on their own. In a lake that has a small, a lower bass population, generally that can be attributed to some poor habitat conditions, either that's really steep banked or, you know, the bays are really silty and there's not a lot of plant growth, things like that. So that money is initially going to go towards a lot of um, additional surveys. You know, those things cost money. You know, we can put on additional seasonal staff. We can pay overtime out of there. We can do things to say, okay, we want you to make sure you get these nine bass surveys done this year that we normally wouldn't have had money to do and determine exactly where we're having low survivability, you know, and where we can make improvements at. And then that money will go to, you know, creating habitat in those in those bays or if it's a if it's a steep-sided reservoir maybe it's putting porcupine cribs or you know i don't know what those habitat guys do you know that's not my expertise <laughs> but they're certainly going to be focused on you know creating areas where the bass feel more comfortable and can have more reproductive success yeah absolutely i mean we've all considered i mean you know you put bass in anywhere and they just grow like crazy but there's a purpose for them bass. And one thing we spoke of before we got in there was tamarack. What is right. the purpose to make sure that them bass, you know, keep the bait in check? What What is the reason behind that? Yeah, so that's one thing we're focused on right now. So we we initially stocked tamarack with some fathead minnows and some golden shiners, try to get the forage base up. We let them reproduce a little bit in there. And then the next thing we start looking at is um, largemouth bass and bluegills. So... We want to get some bluegills in there that start reproducing and they'll keep the forage species in check so they don't get too overabundant, you know. And then we get the largemouth bass in there to keep the golden shiners and the bluegills also in balance. So, and that's critical. It is the most important thing to have in a successful fishery. So once that bass population is large enough that it keeps the bluegill and the golden shiners, the larger forage species in balance, you know, not over populated with bass that they're you know diminishing it it's just got to reach that that perfect level where the bluegills are having reproductive success and the largemouth bass are getting big because they're feasting on them and once they get that then you're ready to start putting in things like uh, black crappies and channel catfish and everything will be balanced perfectly that they grow well everybody's got plenty to eat but they're not overpopulated so they're stunted they grow well and you get a great panfish fishery if the largemouth bass population is too small, um, back in 2001, um, I don't think, you know, the hatchery pot programs weren't that great on raising largemouth bass. I don't think that's something that was even, you know, I didn't know about it back then. Um, back then, it was more like if we had to refill a lake, they would, tra they would trap largemouth bass out of a different lake and transfer them there. Um, obviously, it's a lot harder to do. Um, and... When you put adults in there, the fear is that you're bringing, you might bring a disease from that other lake into this lake, you like largemouth bass virus that caused so much problems down on the Susquehanna with our uh, smallmouth bass down there. You don't certainly don't want to do that in a newly refilled reservoir. So stocking the bass from the hatchery system allows us to make sure we test those fish first, make sure we're starting to lake out on a 
with a clean slate. There's no diseases being transported in. And the other thing is when you bring adults in, obviously those fish are looking for big bluegills to eat and they're just not there yet, you know? So it makes more sense to put small bass in with the small bluegills and let them forage as much as they want. They grow, they reproduce. The ones, the right number, mother nature's perfect at taking care of populations like this. So the number of largemouth bass that water can support is the, the amount that are going to live. The other ones will get out competed by their brothers and sisters. So once you get that population where it's just perfect and then you don't have to worry about the black, the black crappies getting overpopulated, you know, and that's kind of what we saw in Tamarack when we had to drain it was there was a gazillion black crappies in there, but they're all, you know, they were nine years old and they were only four inches long. It just, there wasn't enough forage base to support that many black crappies and there wasn't enough largemouth bass to keep the black crappie population down. So we've got to make sure we get that largemouth bass population nice and strong and then we'll be ready to start stocking the rest of the channel catfish and the black crappies and eventually we'll get the muskies back in there. That water is just a perfect the perfect size and water depth and water clarity everything is perfect for musky habitat so that it will be a good musky lake again but hopefully it'll also be a, a fantastic panfish fishery and bass fishery so when you're planning out the way a lake should uh should act over the years with the prey species compared to the predator species are you factoring in the anglers as well keep going out and keeping harvest well that's why Generally, when we're for this, you know, the first three or four years, you'll see on these lakes that there's, it's a catch and, it'll either be no fishing or it'll be catch and release only for several years. Okay. Until we, until those populations level out. That's awesome. That's the reason for that. So is there any more of a poster child lake than Pymatuna? Say that again? Is, it, is there any more of a poster child lake than Pymatuna? That, like no, a, it's, it's really that's a quite essential. Lake, it? it's, it's incredibly fertile. It supports just a tremendous amount of fish biomass, you know, more than, more than more, most lakes you would see. And, you know, it's, it's not great for reproduction of walleyes and muskies because it's so fertile and there's so much organic material in the water, you know, that stuff settles out and smothers the eggs, you know, totally different than something you'd see in the upper peninsula up in, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, those waters up there aren't nearly as fertile. You know, you can see the bottom in 15 feet of water. Muskies up and walleyes up there can reproduce very well. Um, the downside of that is they also, that infertility is causes their forage species to not be as prolific. You know what I mean? So there's not mm-hmm. as much zooplankton in the water feeding on the phytoplankton. So there's not just clouds and clouds of bait fish. So their overall fish biomass that a lake can hold is dictated by how fertile the water is. Hmm. So Pymatuning is an incredibly fertile water. It has great zooplankton, which means that, you know, when the fathead minnows and the golden shiners spawn, they have plenty to eat. So there's huge schools of bait, which makes survivability of young walleyes and young bass and young muskies really, really well. And it just, the food changes keeps on going and fish survive really well. So now that before we get the muskies, we've covered everything. We can all come to one consensus. We all dislike. <laughs> we all dislike the Army Corps. Yeah, <laughs> that's all we've got. <laughs> no, no, Mark, Mark, you could pound salt. They, oh, I, they I, called. I, they just called. They heard all yep, this they, shit already, and they said you could pound salt, sir. Yep. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and that's what they tell me every time. Because I have, I have, you know, one thing that I've fought with the state that kind of one thing that I don't like, and maybe you can hit on this a little bit too. 
What you know, stock trout. We have we have put these stock trout on such a pedestal that we have taken out the actual natural reproduction and natural fish to take place in that in these waterways. And to us, we have pike, we have muskie. That I mean, obviously the muskie aren't reproducing, but we have great pike, smallmouth. We have a lot of good local creeks that are shut down completely for six to eight weeks on a period of time because of stock trout. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I, and um, I know I know a lot of it comes into game commissioners because the game commissioners can't decipher whether you're fishing for what have you, because they don't know the difference between a size 18 Adams and a in a in a, in a eight inch pike fly. But at the end of the day, that is one of the main things is they have to differentiate because we don't want these trout fishermen going in there having fish caught beforehand. Is this fair, or what do we need to do in order to separate the fact that we have a great fishery that doesn't revolve around stock trout? Yeah, where, where in particular are you talking about? Well, Maybe I, mean, a couple I, I really don't want to mention these. I'll mention all them lakes, but I'm not going to dial into these <laughs> because we're starting to get into a couple areas that I don't really want to talk about. But let's just put it this yeah, way. It's down around where we are. A good, it's a good topic and um i'm we, starting to hear about it more than i used to which i i fought it for I three years I, I know that certainly happens i guess in my mind it was it was it wasn't very it wasn't all over the place you know there was just a few places that you know it shut down and it, it's a shame you know it it just it, you know i guess it was always kind of thought of as you know it's the exception, not the rule. And there's other places to go, you know, for that period. So it was never really talked about too much. It's, but I've been seeing enough comments, even within the last week or so, that it's, it's made me want to look into it a little further. Um, and I'm not even exactly sure on what the rules are. You know, and I should well, be. I'm kind of embarrassed I've, to say I've that. I've fought it very hard. And let me tell you, I've fought it the whole way for a couple of years to where it got to Hoy to the guy that drew the lines. And he goes, mm-hmm. I 100% agree with you. And then it worked the whole way to the point where I got a call and said, do you want to come to Harrisburg and talk about this? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And then next thing I know, I got an email saying, don't, don't even bother. We're stopping it right now. And no, the reason we don't want to do this is because, A, the game commissioners don't need to be out there. They're not paid to decipher what you're fishing for. And, B, the people that are going out there to fish for stock trout don't want them fish caught previously. They don't want scarred fish. That was the exact verbatim email I received. And that was after years of fighting it. The local waterways are local to, I mean, they're local to us and a little bit south of us. So, I mean, you can, I'm sure you can put the correlation together on that. I'm not going to go on air with it. But there, <laughs> there's about three of them that are very prolific trout fisheries that are very, 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 very good warm water fisheries. And I'm talking very good warm water fisheries that are being overtaken by stock trout. And what, what might be like the the profitability on your side for raising trout. Wait. And you're not getting no Jared just does steelhead and brown oh, trout. Oh, okay. Like well Harry. I mean the idea of it, what's what what would be what's the sense so you know you don't there's no payback in it. Like everything you do is a is kind of a, a futuristic thing. And like what what's the huge, huge focus on trout for? Yeah, I'm not sure. People love it, man. I, I just, I we're, just, we're taking I mean, our kids out to do it next week. Yeah, but people the, love it. <laughs> when I when I look at money well spent, I I get it. But, you know, I'm getting information, good information back and feedback, and and I just never, 
I know. It, I know it's a stigma and that no, trout thing, but that's exactly. Okay. It's all a stigma. Okay, I see what you're saying. Like, so it's a kind of a touch. It's a kind of a kind of a complex issue. Yeah. So let me say it this way. So, you know, coming from a warm water hatchery and being up here in northwestern Pennsylvania, I certainly get where you're coming from. Says, uh, you know even from a warm water hatchery perspective, we would prefer, you know, the state not to focus on trout so much, you know, because we feel like, you know, people get to fish for our fish a lot of the year, you know what I mean? They're ice fishing for our fish and, you know, we don't promote what we're doing with the walleyes and the muskies and channel catfish as much as we do the trout, you know, and, you know, we feel badly about that. So, but I mean, I think that's changing a little bit for one. Um, and the other thing is that I think I try to temper, you know, my thoughts on that with the fact that, you know, where we live up here in Northwestern Pennsylvania is kind of special. You know, when I, I even, you know, I have buddies that work at hatcheries down in center County and, you know, they are, they tell me blank, blank how envious they are of the, the lake fishing opportunities and stuff we have up here. You know, they just, it, it's not like that everywhere. You know what I mean? So, you know, when you talk about Center County, they have Sayers Reservoir down there. That's, you know, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a big reservoir, so it's not great habitat, you know, so they do have, you know, some good fishing. There's some good crappy fishing and stuff in there, but it's not anything like, you know, we could run over to, Lake Edinburgh Lake or Lake LaBeouf and have great fishing. Now, they, you know, a lot of this large portion of the state just doesn't have those kind of opportunities. And it is a lot more trout focused than I realize. Um, but I think as a warm water, you know, I got the fish focused on stocking warm water fish. That's also something, you know, that I, when I get an opportunity to talk to a biologist from Center County, you know, my, I'm pushing that conversation to say, where, where can we, what other water bodies can we put muskies in? What other, where can we get a nice, you know, good population where guys in this area can go and fish and what guys in this area? And, you know, one thing that came from that just recently is we started stocking muskies in Bald Eagle Creek down below Sayers Reservoir. Um, so that, you know, hopefully in a couple of years, that'll be a, a stronghold for musky populations. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I try to, you know, the other thing too to understand is, it's because of the timing, you know, because trout is the first thing that comes up in the year to fish for. That's when everybody buys their licenses. So it, it, it exacerbates the idea of that's where all the money comes from. Yeah. So, we're, you know, we're just, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the game commission saying that license sales are driven by, by doe hunters, you know, just because everybody buys their license at the exact same time, because we have to put in our doe licenses, doesn't mean that's the only thing we're hunting for for the year, but that's what it seems like. You know what I mean? So the snow where everybody's locked down for the whole winter and hibernating. And as soon as the snow melts, everybody rushes out and buys their fishing license. And it looks like we're buying a fishing license to go trout fishing. Cause that's the first yeah. thing that comes out. Exactly. You know? So it's kind of yeah. a, a perception thing and it's up, but I try to keep myself grounded and say, you know, we are kind of special with all the opportunities that we have up here in Northwest. You're right. You're right. But a lot oh, of the state and, doesn't and you know what? That's the thing is, and, and that's the reason why I say a lot of what I do is because we're fortunate enough in this, what we do right now is we get to talk to people from all over. We are extremely fortunate what we have. And I think that's why we're so passionate. And so quite frankly, just downright ignorant about certain things is because 
we see how great of a fishery you have and what you've done, and it's fantastic. You've done a hell of a job, and we can't thank you enough for what you've done. But there's so much exaggerated about the fact of trout fishing and about what the Army Corps does of recreation that we actually just sit here and, and we see what what is there and what it is, but there's so much more to be offered. Everybody looks at the ten percent, but they don't realize what the other ninety percent is in there, and it and it's just kind of and it stinks because. We see the other 90%, and we have an epic fishery. We have so many bodies of water. We have 20, 30 places we can take you fishing, but everybody focuses on the 2%, and it's, and it's terrible because that 2% is such micromanaged and focused so heavily that nobody realizes that there's so much more to be offered in this in this state. Okay. Hey, Jared, let's, uh, let's get into some of the musky stocking that you do, man. And, uh, before, okay. and before we do that... Can people come and take a, a tour of the hatchery? You said you do tours. That's, and when when are those available? Yeah, so normally when we're not under COVID conditions, people can stop in any time. We have the Linesville Hatchery in particular is actually the most visited hatchery out of all the hatcheries in the state. Uh, we get somewhere between 58,000 and 80,000 people, depending on the weather every, in a given year. Wow. Um, Holy I didn't realize there were that many. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. We actually have education staff that coordinates with a lot of school districts and stuff, and we bring a lot of school buses and school classes through um, and give them tours. But if, when we're open, the public is welcome to stop in anytime. And what? You know, and you're welcome to do like a self-guided tour. And what? You know, if you wanted a better, and you can stop and just if you see somebody working, just say, "Hey, what are you doing today?" You know, everybody's glad to talk to you. Um, but if you wanted to call ahead and you know give somebody a heads up that you were coming and we. We could we would try our best to try to have somebody available to show you around a little bit too. And what are your hours? Because I know I stopped in five minutes before you guys closed one day, and that's that's the only <laughs> time I ever got to meet you. <laughs> yeah, you said, we're there hey, we're, we're closing. <laughs> okay, so um, you guys also have that that giant aquarium in the hatchery. Yep. How often do those fish get rotated? Like when the Every muskies year. start eating. Yeah, so um, we kind of. All those fish come out of the Palmatoon Sanctuary when we put our trap nets out um, to start collecting walleye eggs. And uh, we use 53-degree well water because our well water is 53 degrees year-round. So we fill that with well water so it's nice and clear. Um, and when we catch fish in the spring, we load that thing up. And then uh, we keep them all year long until the fall when the water in the sanctuary drops down to, you know, around 50 degrees. And we let them all go back in the sanctuary. Awesome. And we do it all again the next year. So in the wintertime, we, you know, fix any cracks or fix any plumbing and get it painted up all pretty again. And then so those fish, we put them in there every single year, every single spring. That is so, so cool. So do we got some, like, repeat offenders? Do you know if you got the same musky twice or that? <laughs> Where's the wiper come uh, from? Oh, wait, wait. That big that big trout goes right back over there? Yeah, you know, the big trout we have, we, obviously, <laughs> yeah. we take out of our raceways. You know, those yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, around. dude, I would We're be over there tapping holes in that ice yeah. for that thing. Where's the wiper <laughs> come from? Because every time I'm there, I always see a big old striper down there. Yeah. Um, you know, it, they're getting few and far between. You know, it's been, you know, about 15, 12 to 15 years since we've had striped bass on station. You know, so... Obviously, whenever we have a, a fish species on on station at the hatchery, it's inevitable a few of them are going to escape out into the sanctuary. You know, they're just going to fit through whatever screen we have in there to keep them in. Um, so 
obviously some got into the sanctuary in the past, but we're not seeing as many as we used to. So, you know, when we do get one, we make sure it gets into the viewing tank. But, uh, <laughs> oh, yes, thank you. getting pretty old now, so we're not finding very many of them. So let's ask a million-dollar question. We're going to start on the muskie. Mm-hmm. Natural. Yeah, let's yeah. Let, let's just start from eggs right. and go up. So right. before we even get into natural reproduction, before we get into anything, you are one person that has figured out how to feed muskie and start them off on a little bit of bait and move them over to fit the, the actual feed that we can afford. Let's start from an egg, and how do you get that muskie and how do you grow them from there? Let, let's start before that, Jared, if you wouldn't mind. Let's go to traps. Yeah, okay. perfect. Yeah, Let, let's start from traps, then go to eggs, and then to go, how do you go? Just go ahead and roll. Okay, so normally once we once we're done collecting walleye eggs, the timing is just perfect. You know, we I tend to think the peak of the muskie spawn in our area is about uh, the second week of April. So does that of, correlate any specific water temperature? A little bit. So. Most things in nature are run by photo period. The length of okay. day, the amount of daylight happens in a day. So as the days get longer, there's hormones that the fish release. Um, and when the light, when it's dark out, there's anti-hormones that the fish release. So there's always a natural balance within the fish of those two hormones. So once the daylight gets long enough, the one hormone starts to take over stronger than the other one. And that's when they know it's time to, you know, that's what develops their eggs, and that's when they know it's time to, time to spawn. So, almost everything in nature happens that way. So, the second week of April is the peak for the muskie spawn. Now, water temperature can affect it, and that it'll slow the fish down or speed them up, just because of the egg development. So, a fish, you know, affects just as it affects growth. So when a, a fish, to grow one inch of fish, it's it's almost a mathematical calculation. It takes a certain amount of calories and a certain amount of temperature. You know, if you raise the temperature, they'll grow faster. If you cool the temperature, they grow slower. So the same exact thing happens with egg development. So if we have an unnaturally cold spring, that second week of April will come, but the, the egg development might be delayed a week. You know, or if we had a really, really warm spring like we did this year, you know, we might see the peak of the muskie spawn at the beginning of April. But it's not going to, it's not dictated by that. It's just sped up or slowed down because of that. Okay. And what what are the traps that you guys are setting out? Yeah, so our trap nets are, you know, they're about 100 and, 120 yards long. And uh, what how they work is we have like a four-foot, just net same. If you want to picture weights on the bottom and floats on the top, we tie that thing onto shore, you know, and we, we draw it all the way out towards the deeper end of the water. So then at that point, you've got a four foot wall. So when, when fish feel the desire to spawn, they're going to start cruising the shorelines looking for the proper habitat. Uh, and when they come in cruising those shallow, hab- shallow waters looking for the right habitat, they hit that, that net and it just kind of leads them out towards the deeper water. So I got and, I got them question for you. So rednecks like me, uh, I've been at Woodcock before when the nets have been out. Mm-hmm. Do you do you want to fish by them? <laughs> no. Okay, <laughs> just making sure. Because <laughs> I was like, no. Everything. Any particular place where the fish are, yeah. you know, congregating. It's they're put in places <laughs> where we can use the shoreline as a funnel. 
Okay, because I was like, so we're, the fish are just we the fish are just randomly swimming all over the lake. You know that that time of year. He's that ja- he's that guy. That so we try to put, put our nets in places where you know there might be a little a, a little point that comes out or something that funnels the fish at that location as they're swimming the shoreline into that net location. So that's where we're putting them at. There's not a, any more fish there than there is across the lake. You know what I mean? It's just we're trying to use the the geography of the lake to funnel the fish into the nets. It's the only reason we, it's the <laughs> way we pick the spots that we do. So we've all listened to the Muskie area, the Fat AZ podcast, and listened to why. But let's explain to our listeners why don't muskie in our area spawn? Yeah, it's just or, a function of the fertility of the waters in, in Pennsylvania. So, you know, when you look at the any inland lake in Pennsylvania, what you're going to see is a, a brown, greenish brown, dirty looking water. And it's not that it's muddy and it's not that it's dirty, it's not that it's polluted, it's that it's fertile. It's got a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus in it. So there's a lot of single cell algae in it. All that, all that color is algae and it's live organisms. So we call that phytoplankton. So you get a nice sunny day, it gets stronger and stronger, and um, the water has a, a nice green color to it, or it almost looks brown. And then the next thing that happens as water temperatures rise in the spring is we get little bugs that hatch. We call those zooplankton. You know, all those fun little things we did in third grade when you go out to the pond and take a little sample of water and put it under a microscope and there's little things swimming around. Yeah, sea monkeys. All those, all those things are feeding on phytoplankton. So... You know, that's kind of when we get into walleye, you know, management in our ponds, that's something we're very detailed about. We're managing we're managing those ponds for the phytoplankton because that's what controls whether we have a good year of raising walleyes or a bad year of raising walleyes is how well we can control that phytoplankton. But in our lakes, we get a lot of runoff of, you know, fertilizers and farm fields and all that stuff that you hear about. You know, our lakes are really, really fertile. So we get really strong phytoplankton blooms. Now, as much as that stuff is reproducing every day, there's just as much of it dying every day. So there's a lot of that stuff settling on the bottom. So any species of fish that makes a nest and tends it and cleans their fish, cleans their eggs off, reproduces just fine. Bluegills and largemouth bass, they do just fine because the all that stuff settling out of the water, they fluff their tail a couple times and they keep their eggs clean. But walleyes and muskies, things like that, that, they just spray their eggs when they find the right habitat and they just lay there on the bottom and then they swim away. Those things are getting smothered because all that organic matter is covering them up within a day or two. You know, I've, I, you know, I say this all the time, but if you go out and you put a dinner plate on the bottom of these lakes and you go back out and check on it the next day, there's like a half inch of crap on top of that dinner plate. You know, that just happens every single day. So you know, with- the Northern Pike are kind of the oddity because they do reproduce pretty well, but the, they have the, uh, um, it's more of a timing thing. Well, they they spawn even before the walleyes do, you know, so they're spawning so early in the year, the phytoplankton really hasn't started yet. So it's not, um, they do have quite a bit of success and they tend to go shallower than most fish do. So they're up in super shallow water where there's a little bit of cover and the water really hasn't, the phytoplankton bloom hasn't really started yet. So they, they kind of beat it you know, and get their reproduction in before that really that whole system starts. That, but then by the time the walleyes and the muskies start spawning, the phytoplankton's in big bloom and uh 
their eggs just they just get smothered and that's why we do have some some natural reproduction in the rivers because if they lay their eggs on a nice little gravel bar that's got flowing water going by it that flow can keep the egg cleared off to some degree and we do get some natural reproduction but in the inland lakes there's no natural reproduction to speak of that makes absolute complete sense too because the pike thing is one thing we thought about and that's before anything starts to actually kind of start start its yeah, so to speak, right so to speak, yeah, get going. <laughs> but what about like natural lakes that are really clear in there and you can see very well in them? What about them lakes? Um, for instance, name one. Oh, well, Edinburgh, Conneaut, Labouf. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, we can keep going for yeah, a while. I think there's a, the opportunity is there, you know, but those lakes just aren't as clear, like, they're not like Lake Michigan, your Michigan lakes clear. You know what I mean? If, oh yeah, good but, point. Good point. I mean, I was out to Edinburgh yesterday, yep. and I I couldn't see more than a couple inches in that water. Yeah, good point. Yep. Okay, so you have the fish in the traps. What is yeah. your? What's the next step? What's the next step on the road? <laughs> so and, then we. Uh, hey Jared, um, just yeah, so go ahead. so we're uh so we're clear. We've had you on the the horn an hour and ten minutes. Do you have time? Really? Yeah, I know. I know. I, 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 it feels like it's been 15. Do you have time to go through all this? I do. Okay, let, um, let's go um, for it, bro. But I could also, if you want to you want to make a whole musky show, we could do it another time, too. It's totally <laughs> up to you. No, man. I, I'm, I'm in. I'm hook, line, okay. and sinker, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. So every day we go out and we, ch- we check our trap nets. We don't want to um, leave fish in those nets for longer, any longer than we have to. So we go out and we get them every single day. Um, we're looking to catch um, – the first thing I guess we're looking for is ripe female muskies. So we every female muskie that's in that net, we pick her up in a nice long sock net so she can't hurt herself, and we squeeze her belly to see if the eggs will come out. If the eggs are going to come out or coming out easy, then we bring her back to the hatchery. If her, her stomach's still kind of hard and no eggs come out, then we just let her go. Um, that's kind of – kind of interesting you know walleyes we don't do that with because the walleyes even if their eggs aren't ready we can bring them back to the hatchery warm the water up a little bit and within a couple days their eggs will be ready they'll ripen up in the hatchery muskies won't do that it's it's too much stress so if they're not ready when we bring them in they're not going to get ready in the hatchery so So we have to let that fish go and maybe we'll catch her again they're kind of like prima donnas yeah a little bit (laughs) (laughs) so you know, the main thing we're looking for is how many female muskies can we catch that day that their eggs are ready. And then from there, we're looking to bring back two males for each female. Because we like to, um, we use the sperm from two males to fertilize their eggs. That way we don't, it minimizes the risk of one of them being a dud or any, you know, bad genetic combinations. You know, if one of those males had, you know, three fin syndrome in his, in his DNA, you know, at least only half the eggs are getting that and the other half are getting fertilized by the other male. Um, hey, so, Jared, hey, Jared, I got, I got a quick question for you. Mm-hmm. How many of your guys that are going out checking the, the trap nets are actual fishermen? And how many of them just shit their pants when they find like a 48-inch musky <laughs> full of eggs and they get to hold it, you know? Yeah. You know, obviously when I'm hiring people, I'm looking for guys that have passion, you know, so a lot of our guys are fishermen. Um, a lot of them aren't though. You know, I'd say it's probably my crew right now is probably 50, 50, you know, half of them are out there fishing every single chance they get and the other half fish a couple times a year with their family. If, if it comes up, you know, so. If they okay. Have to. So I'm going to ask a million dollar question. You just brought it up as passion. 
because I have a lot of passion about this. You get to see them. You get to catch them. You get to hold them. Everything. Why are we still maintaining the size limit that we have? And why have we not bumped it higher in Pennsylvania? <laughs> that's a that's a great question. You might not like the answer. Though. I know, I know, and I'm not going to like it. But I'm going to I'm going to let you tell me because I have a lot of respect for what you're going to say. <laughs> <clears throat> so, um, the short answer is it doesn't work. It doesn't make a difference. And we've we proved that we're you know that the actual study hasn't been written and documented and put out there yet, but we're close to wrapping it up on the 40 inch thing. So there's just not enough harvest to make a difference. Guy, you know, we hate, and I'm right with you. You know, when somebody's out there and, you know, you see somebody put a big, you know, 42 inch muskie on a big yellow rope and they're all excited and like, you're like, oh you get that hole that pit in your stomach like oh man that's one more fish that's not going to be that 54 inch monster in five years <laughs> yep but the fact is that there's just not enough of that happening to make a difference and especially especially if we keep the muskie program growing the way that it is and we get these populations you know to exciting levels you know when you say that, do you mean there's not enough people keeping fish of that level or there's not enough fish getting to that level? There's not enough people keeping fish. Okay, okay, okay. So, yeah, so, I mean, you kind of yep. think about it. Good like, answer, yep. You know, if, you know, just to pull numbers out, you know no, what I mean? If we're shooting for one fish per acre, you know, in Palmer Tuning, there's 17,000 acres, so there's 17,000 muskies. You know, maybe, Ooh, maybe only 1,000 of them are over 50 inches, you know what I mean? So it's hard to get them there. You know, so, but if, when somebody, if, and you can even go to the extreme, if a thousand people kill a 40 inch muskie every year, which I don't think it's anywhere near that, you know, it's probably two dozen, but even if it was a thousand, you know, of course, I don't like it. Of course, we'd like to see it not happen, but that person gets to experience the muskie fishery their way too. You know, I try to, I try to look at everything like, you know, my way doesn't have to be the best way, you know, and that person got really, really excited that day. He told 95 of his friends, and they all came over to his house and looked at this fish. Maybe he bounced and puts it on his wall. Like, or they all had so musky steaks. You know what I mean? That's, that's part of musky fishing as well. You know, it's not, you know, the, the side a lot of us would like to look at. But that being said, even if a thousand fish get taken out of there, it's really not going to yeah. change the, the size dynamics of that lake and you know we have lakes that we've sampled every single year since the 40 inch change and there isn't more bigger fish in that water body than there was before they're exactly the same percentages as they were before yeah. no. okay and that's a great answer and that's kind of what i was asking and you, you hit me nail to a t you can't ask for any more than that all right so now you have the the fish that you've trapped the males and the females are at the hatchery Yep. Once we get them back there, then, um, you know, generally we don't spawn every single day like we do at the walleyes. Um, it kind of depends on what we've caught. We like to be able to take large sums of eggs because then as we're hatching them and going through the next six processes, you know, it's nice to have large groups of fish on the same schedule. If we spawn every three fish we get every day and we have this tank at this stage and this tank at this stage and this tank at this stage, it just gets really confusing. 
Um, so we like to try to wait. So we'll hold a fish in the hatchery. We put black covers over the tanks so they're out of the light. They just they get completely calm. They're just totally chill in there. You can, you can take the cover off. You can reach your hand in there and pet them. They're not like freaked out <laughs> trying to get away from you. They're just they're totally chilling. So we'll keep them in there for two or three days and try to get like 12 females. So, um, you know, and the weekend plays in there too, you know what I mean? So if, if we can have a weekend off, we'll take a weekend off. If we have to work through the weekend, we'll work through the weekend. But if we have nine fish on a Friday, we'll spawn it rather than waiting for 12, you know what I mean? Or if we have, if we have three, you know, we might even let them go if we've had them for three days and we don't want to work through the weekend. We'll maybe let those three go and just try to start over again next week. Cause we want to have those big lots. I, Hey, I got a question about that. Yep. You're, you're gathering these fish from multiple lakes around Western Pennsylvania, correct? Well, no, we're only trap netting pen, out of uh, Palmer tuning. Oh, you're, we do, you're not we doing. Do, yeah. The, the union city crew does trap net, you know, Woodcock and Canada and Edinburgh. Okay. So wait, wait, what was the brood stuff? To make the tiger crosses. Um, but as far as the purebred muskie program goes, um, we're just, for now, we're just getting those out of pine So what's the deal with the brood stock then? And why are we cut off from fishing certain areas because of brood stocking? Yeah, so those are the lakes that we have historically gone to. <laughs> Mostly that was... Um, <laughs> That was, you know, I started my career at the Union City Hatchery. So, you know, when we're in there trap netting, we're using a chemical, we're using an anesthetic on these fish when we're spawning them. And then we take, we, we take very good care to make sure the fish that we take out of a particular water go back to that particular water. And when we take them back, you know, somebody theoretically could harvest that fish and eat it. We don't want them eating it anesthetic that's actually it's actually not even us it's it's regulated by the fda that way so you know, it's, there's okay. a withdrawal time on this on this medication that we're using but in other so that's why the, that's why the, the broodstock program was created in the first place was so that you know we didn't have to hold those fish in the hatchery for the withdrawal period we could just go back and let them go without the fear of somebody eating that chemical but what about the fact that let's take sugar lake and for instance we are now <laughs> cutting off a place that we can go catch pickerel to remove them from that fishery in a period where we are capable of fishing them because of brood stalking. Um, it's, yeah, I know well, that, that, that that's a loaded question. So that, that's a tough your, question because like, chance to go catch pickerel. Well, you can catch pickerel anytime. By the brood stock lakes, well, it shouldn't be. No, but because of the fact of that during that period of time when they're in the spawn and they're in close to shores, when a lot of people can go close them, go catch, catch them close to shore because they're spawning. We're mm -hmm. not allowed to. You're not allowed to go in there and fish for pickerel or catch any ESOC species during a brood stock period. I don't think that's true. Oh, I know it's true because I tried to hold a tournament on that lake during that period of time. And he we weren't allowed he, to go on there. He works there, Mark. <laughs> I know, but, but, but during that period of March through, what is that, early April, you're not allowed to harvest any species or fish for any ESOC species on a broodstock lake. See, I I'll, I could check into it and get back to it. Yeah, you want. we we may need to on that one because so I can I, give you a hundred percent answer, but I can tell you ninety nine percent. I'm sure that because the the commissioner is actually the broodstock program is very highly regulated, and it's something that if we want to make a change on it, and it actually has to go to the board of commissioners and they approve it, and it's very species specific. So Sugar Lake is in the musky broodstock program, so during 
you know, from the time from March through April, whatever that time period is, you cannot harvest muskies there, but you can still fish for them. It's just catch and release. And any fish species that's not a muskie, you should be able to catch and harvest if you so chose. Okay, so that's where we may have a little bit of a differentiation because we were told we are not allowed to fish for any ESOC species during that six-week period of time on a broodstock lake because of that. Regardless of it being a pike, a muskie, or a pickerel, we are not allowed. And they said you're not allowed to fish for them? So these regulations are intended to restrict harvest and fish consumption from designated lakes during the FDA-mandated withdrawal period. During these period, fish anesthetics are used during the musculage, ti- musculage, tiger musculage, hybrids, northern pike, and pickerel. From April 1st through May 31st, fishing for these species is permitted on a catch-and-release no-harvest basis. It is unlawful to take or possess any tiger musky, tiger, or musculage, tiger musky, northern pike, or pickerel. So with that, they did, we were not allowed to fish for them or do anything no, of that nature. it said you're not allowed to keep them. Correct. But during that, though, too, they didn't want us to be in there fishing for them, though, either, because we were trying to set up, like, a tournament on there to try to at least kind of help with sugar, like, to move and, put, you know, at least get people in there fishing for them. For the pickerel. But, yeah, this is a catch and release only. So now you have a non-native species, but you're not allowed to actually take it out of there, even though it is non-native, because it's a catch and release only. Well, wow, that's that's really interesting. I'll so I, I, I guess that, that was a loaded question um, for you on my hear, end, and I'm I'll sorry. Hear more about that, and it's something that, um, and that's something where like feedback from the anglers, like you're saying here, could help us manage that better. Because yeah, and, and, I think and, and I'm Sugar sorry. Lake is one of those ones that usually doesn't get used anyhow, and if there was a benefit for it coming off of the the musky, um, it, you know, it, the, and again, season for that that period of time, I, I don't think the biologist would have too much trouble in doing that, um, especially if it benefited the water body by getting some of the pickerel taken out of there. Yeah, so, and, and again, I'm I'll sorry because I, I kind of loaded that question for you because yes, you are allowed to fish for them, but you aren't allowed to take them out of there. So a pickerel in per in, in, in is what's what I'm speaking of is a, yes, you're allowed to fish for them, but you're not allowed to keep them. So in a time period of that, they're in there spawning; they're easier to catch. But you are allowed to fish for them, but it's only a catch-and-release basis because of it being a prude stock. So, Conneaut Lake, Canadota, Sugar, Woodcock, Edinburgh, and Howard Eaton, uh, and there's a couple other ones other, other than that. But, yes, you are allowed to fish for them, but you're not allowed to take them out of there. So, even though we can go in there and fish for them, it's showing it's a brood stock lake, so we can't take them out of there. Yeah, do you think that the pickerel would be harvested in there on a significant basis during that time? Well, I don't. I guess I don't know the, the answer to that yes or no, but I guess my response to that would be why wouldn't they? We need to get them out of there. Right. But so yeah, I guess that's I agree the answer. With you. I think that, it's something we could that I'll definitely take to the biologists and see what they think about it because I think if it's a the limited amount we're ever going to use Sugar Lake as a broodstock lake doesn't outweigh the benefits that could happen with some of those pickerel getting caught. So I think that's an excellent point. But the bigger point that I, I've taken from this is uh, all the pure strain are coming straight from Pimatuming? Yeah. So they're they're not coming from Edinburgh and all the other lakes. That That's Union City. They're doing that. Yep, they're doing that with for the tiger muskies. Okay, so all the purebreds are coming from Pimatuming, and that's mm-hmm. all you, and they're all going back to the same lake that they came from. <laughs> yep, 
Uh, yeah, that's that, that's a great. Okay. Yeah, because that that was what was going to lead my next question, but you you answered it by they're all coming from Bamatuming. So, uh, so genetically, all the fish running around in Pennsylvania are they pretty Bamatuming centric? Yeah, and uh, <laughs> there's a few reasons we don't get too worked up about that. Um, fish genetics is something we think about quite a bit. Um, you know, we're, we're doing some kind of overhauls with our programs, like largemouth bass program. We're trying to switch up the genetics a little bit there, you know, so it is definitely something we think about. Um, palmer tuning, uh, the, the fish in palmer tuning are kind of special because back when it was stocked, the fish came from all over the place. Okay. So there was, there was like eerie fish put in there. So there's, you know, we see some spotted, you know, fish that look like a spotted fish sometimes, you know, or even half the fish looks like a spotted, like eerie spotted fish. Yeah. You know, some of them were put in there from the lake, the, the Ohio river drainage, you know, just, there was kind of a hodgepodge back in the seventies when a bunch of them were brought in. So there's a, there's a really nice genetic diversity within prima tuning and the population's so large that there's a lot of genetic diversity within the within the musky population itself you know it's it's not like if a, a lake like LaBeouf we wouldn't want to be you know spreading the genetics from just those fish all over the state but because it's such a large population you know the genetic diversity is pretty good so can I ask you a question about the hodgepodge of fish mm-hmm. does, does that have a, an effect from that being a two-state lake or Back in the seventies when they were stocking it and you got the hodgepodge of fish coming in from everywhere. Was that Ohio stocking it and Pennsylvania stocking it? Yeah, as far as I know, it was just Pennsylvania, but because okay. I just don't have any records from Ohio or, you know, anybody alive to talk to that was back there doing that. Um, but I, I do have some old they're actually handwritten notes <laughs> from <laughs> the awesome. manager back then of where these fish were coming from. No, that that that's perfectly fine. I, I just I I didn't know if that had something to do with it. Yeah. That, you know, Ohio could have been doing something even even more profound, you know, than what I know about, but as far as I can find written, you know, is the, is the state of Pennsylvania bringing those fish in. Okay. So the fish, you, what, they're, they're eggs now. Last time we got off, off basis. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> Last time we got we, basis, we, the they... fish in, we spawn them, <laughs> uh, we, we hold them until we can take a big take of eggs. Um, we, we run them through a disinfection process to make sure, you know, we actually put them in some iodine and we do it during a process where they're soaking in some water from their surroundings. So they get a little bit of the iodine inside the egg so that any diseases pass from the adult to the egg. We can, that kills any viruses and bacteria that are in there. And then they, they go onto our egg jars where they incubate um, for about 14 days and then they hatch. Okay. And then, Hey, from this point on, will you tell us when they got stocked previously and when they get stocked currently? Yep. Okay. Sounds good. So okay. So they're they're little bitty musky fry right now. Yeah. So when we hatch them, we have a kind of it's muskies are the only species we hatch in like these little floating baskets we put in the tanks because our tanks are you know kind of deep you know they're two and a half feet deep and you got to really bend over to clean out you know all the little eggshells and stuff. So we put them in these floating baskets that are only like six inches deep for the first couple of days right after they hatch. And that way we, we use these little hand siphons and we go through these baskets, you know, just hours and hours and hours every day, pulling out every little 
every little chunk, every little egg fungus, anything that's in there that's not a musky fry. So is that to make sure it's cleaned out of there? Is that the new guy's job? <laughs> we actually all do it. I, I spend a lot of time doing it. Right? Good. Uh, that's just awesome. because it's so important. You know, to keep if we get a little bit of if if we miss too many eggshells, they start to grow fungus, and then the that fungus actually gives off some warmth. So the fry are kind of drawn to it and they'll all cling to it and you'll come in the next day and there'll be a big giant, you know, baseball size clump of dead musky fry because they clung onto this piece of fungus and it just grew exponentially overnight and, and, and it can happen that fast. And how do you know that? Because it's well, happened, see, right? <laughs> what do you mean? I'm, no, I said, how do you know? Because it's happened, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You learn from yeah, experience. We've, we've learned a lot over the years, and now we're we're just super anal about making sure we have these tanks super clean because we know that's gonna, um, it's gonna pay big dividends later on. So, the little musky fry are there. They're all clean. Yep. What they're what are all you laying on the bottom? You know, they're born with a, a yolk sac. Okay. And they just they just kind of lay there on the bottom for the first ten days of their lives, absorbing this yolk sac and growing a little bit. So once that yolk sac is totally absorbed, then you'll, you know, about day 10, we'll start seeing them swimming up in the tanks. And they, they you know, normally when a fish swims up, it's looking for food. How big you know, are so they these at, guys that, would be, at this point? Um, how big are they? Yeah, like um, pink, pinky fingernail size? Yeah, about that length, you know, and okay. almost, you know, so skinny that they're see-through. You know, they're just long and skinny and about the length of your pink, pinky fingernail. Okay. And, uh... So once they swim up, you know, they in the wild, they're the last thing to spawn, you know, and in the wild, there'd be, by the time they're starting to swim up, the timing would be that the minnows in the lake are starting to, starting to spawn. So there'd be minnow hair fry everywhere and that'd be their first food source. So they're looking for something moving. Now in the past, you know, even before my day, um, they would send crews out in the boats, out into the water every single day and just run nets through the water, bringing that musk, those minnow hair fry into the tanks. And they'd load the tanks up with that minnow hair fry, and that's what they'd eat that day. Then they'd go out and they'd gather them up again, you know, and they'd just keep them fed that way, which was, as you can imagine, very, very labor-intensive. Yeah, and, obviously. And that's how they did the whole process. I mean, they did that from, you know, the time the muskies swam up until the time they stocked them. They had boat crews going out, netting minnows every single day, and the muskies would eat. How well the muskies ate depended on how well they caught minnows that day. You know, and then when you know, when July, August would roll around, the minnows were all big, you know, and they were going towards deeper water. They weren't able to catch very many muskies, and they would go stock them at five or six inches. You know, it's as big as they were at that time. So that was what the muskie program looked like, you know, and, 20 years ago. And 20 years ago, when they stalked a muskie at five inches long, what was the uh, survival rate of a muskie? Obviously not very well. You know, yeah. it's, when you say survival rate, that's a difficult thing to answer. Um, I know. It's a loaded we question. Try to, you know, when we talk about populations, we try to look at long-term trends and, um, you know, catch rate success, you know, catch rate is something we can, we can manage, you know, if a, a biologist goes out and they put four nets in a lake and the, the nets are each in there for 24 hours and they catch, you know, a hundred muskies, that's 25 muskies per, per catch day. You know what I mean? Or you can break it down to catch how many muskies did you catch per hour? 
you know, with every hour of effort, you got this many muskies, and that's something you can repeat year after year after year. And then you can see the population go up and the population go down based on those catch rates. So, you know, to, if we put 6,000 muskies in Edinburgh Lake and there's no way to go back out there and catch every single muskie the next year to know how what percentage survived. You know what I mean? So it's it's anybody that tells you a catch or survival percentage is totally making it up or pulling it out of somewhere because pulling out there's, of no way, there's no way to get that number. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what we can do is we can look at how much we're contributing to the fishery and how much are we increasing the population or we decreasing the population, which directions it going over a long period of time. So, what's um, a... so but we can, you know, to answer your question, you know, we can look at, we had the exact same data back then. So the catch rates now are astronomically higher than the catch rates were back then. So we can surmise that the five or six inch fish were not surviving very well, but it was kind of a mindset too, because they weren't trying, they weren't trying to create the kind of fisheries that we're trying to create today. They were, they were managing for muskies to be a once in a lifetime kind of catch. They, we want, they wanted them to be in the water. And if somebody happened to catch one, it would make the front page news. You know, look at this big fish that we caught, but it wasn't like they were trying to say, okay, anybody that's going out there targeting muskies, we want you to be able to catch them. It, that's not even the, that wasn't even a mindset back then. It was just get some muskies into as many waters as we can, and maybe some will survive, and maybe someday somebody will catch one. But now that's totally not the, the case because we, we can go out to specific bodies of water and target them with freaking fly rods and and have good days. That's so great. You know and what I mean? That's, a ch- just, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It's a, it's a change in mentality. Yeah. You know? And it kind of came around through – you know, some of the hardships, the financial hardships that we were going through, you know, there's a lot of conversations within the Fish and Boat Commission when we were, you know, nobody, you were, we're looking for alternate funding sources, you know, you know, a lot of people I'll see on, you know, Facebook chats, will say, well, oh, I can't believe you're raising the fishing license. New York lo- lowered their fishing license. Yeah. You know how they did that? They, their state legislature decided to give their fish hatchery systems, you know, one-tenth of one percent of the income tax or the sales tax on fishing and boating equipment that little tiny percent of that income tax or sales tax was enough to fully fund their hatchery system so they said well we'll decrease the fishing licenses for people we don't get any tax money whatsoever zero it's all fishing license sales so we explored all those other options first yeah when we were told no on all those other options that made much more sense to everybody all we're left with is the increased license sale. But I mean, it was bad enough. We're like, seriously, we're having trouble keeping the lights on. It's, you know, it it got to that point. And, you know, that led us to conversations about, okay, why are people not buying fishing licenses? How do we get more people to buy fishing licenses? And uh, a lot of people that think like me were saying, just kept driving home in these meetings, you know, like if we want people to buy more fishing licenses, we got to make fishing more exciting. You know, it's not, you know, and some people would, you know, say that there's just too many options for people these days or people go bowling and they go soccer playing and they go, they, there's just too many options and they, they're not choosing to go fishing. There's just not enough hours in the day, you know, and some of us would argue, 
Well, there's still 24 hours in a day. It's the people are choosing to do the thing that's exciting. You know, if we make a fishery that they can go there and it's going to be exciting, they're going to choose to do that over, you know, going bowling. You know, we have to make fishing more exciting than bowling, not make fishing okay and just hope people choose it over bowling. Let's make it more exciting. Let's make it the best it can be. You know, and, and eventually that kind of those kind of talks and that kind of thinking led to, you know, the you started hearing idea, you know, up, upper management in the fisheries biologist divisions starting to say things like, "Oh, let's make destination waters, destination waters." That that started to be like a key t- key term, you know. And then and then programs started to develop, and when they were writing these fisheries management plans on how we're gonna how we're gonna manage the muskies and the walleyes and channel catfish through the whole state of Pennsylvania, that idea of destination water started leaking into them. And they started, you know, not managing, instead of just trying to get as many fish in as many places as we could, they started putting minimum catch rates for successful waters. So when the biologists go out there and they set their nets to see what the walleye population is in a lake, you know, they have to catch 0.6 fish per hour or that lake is not being successful and we're going to put those fish somewhere else. And they did the same thing with the muskies. So that started eliminating some waters that were not successful from the long-term stocking plan where we could put a higher stocking rate or what turned out to be larger fish, you know, less fish, but larger fish into less waters, but at a rate that's going to make it an exciting fishery. It's just, a, it was a complete mentality change. Yeah. I, I, I'm totally on board, man. And I, I totally agree with everything you guys have been doing. Can you go through the, the change that, that has happened from the dudes going out throwing cast nets every day in stalking the five-inch muskies to what's going on today? Yeah, and I, I can go into quite a bit of detail about it because I was involved in a lot of it. Yeah, I'm sure you so, were. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we called you, man. We'd go into the it's source. It's kind of neat because I, <laughs> like when I got hired, it was right at the very beginning of the end of the let's go catch as many minnows as we can to can't we feed these things something else that's more cost efficient and also that is more easily obtained. Can't we get these things to eat dry food? And we were told, you know, because, we went to a bunch of other states and said, have you guys ever tried this? And a lot of other states had tried it, and some were having some success with it. Um, but most of them had given up on it because it just wasn't efficient. You had to start with millions of fish and to end up with 100,000 fish that would convert over to the dry food, and then you could raise them on it. But you just – you had to – waste so many fish to get there that it, they didn't find it cost effective and they went back to minnows so we're like okay so then we just we just started playing with it and trying different techniques and um <clears throat> you know some of the early mistakes that we were making you know my first my very first year in the fish and boat commission we you know this was our main focus and the, the mistake we made that year is we put way too much food into the water you know we we had these tiny little muskies and we had them underneath a, a feeder and we had that feeder going off and the food's dropping in front of them and they're not eating it but we figured eventually some of them are going to get hungry enough to eat it so we just got what else are we going to do we'll just keep dropping it into my face hell yeah and, man uh, typical the, fisherman the ammonia level because you're dropping so much food in the tank goes up too high and then they get sick and they you know most of them died and then we ended up with like four thousand fish our first year like, 
oh, that didn't work. <laughs> but then we, you know, we're so excited to try it again next year, but we had to wait a whole another year. So the next year rolled around and we said, okay, this year we're not going to get these tanks dirty. We're going to try dropping, we're going to try to keep that feed going. We're going to try to make sure less feed comes out of the feeder. Our, our mantra what that year was more, uh, less food more often. We just kept saying that we want less food. Like even if we, if we could set the feeders so that three pellets would fall out, that's perfect. We wanted to do that every 30 seconds. You know what I mean? So there's less food coming out, not getting the tank dirty, and then more opportunities for the fish to eat. Yeah, kind of like a kind like a guy there, that we, likes to lift weights. Clean the tanks more often, trying to keep the water quality better, so that they they wouldn't get sick. And that year we did better. We got like forty thousand fish. We were like, woohoo! <laughs> we figured something <laughs> out. So we have we know now we know we have to have the water really, really clean. That's the way to keep these fish from getting sick. And if we don't if they don't get sick and they don't die, they have a better chance of eating some of the dry feed. And then um and then we started using the brine shrimp. So the brine shrimp was really the key that keeps the fish alive, first of all, is you know, our mantra of the third year was a dead fish can eat the dry food. So we had to use the brine shrimp to keep them alive long enough that they'll eat the dry food. So we got to keep them alive. And then that just over the next five or six years kind of developed into, okay, while the brine fish are in the tank and they're feeding crazy is a really good time to try to teach them how to eat the the dry food. We see them, we can actually see them eat, strike at some of the dry food while they're going crazy over the brine shrimp. So then it became where we, we didn't even focus on the feeders so much as we would let them get really, really hungry. We put some brine shrimp on the water. Then we'd sit there with our hands and just throw little tiny pinches of feed <laughs> in there. So that they, and once they'd accidentally eat one, they'd go, hmm, that wasn't that bad. And then they would do it. The next morning we'd come in, before we give them brine shrimp, we'd throw some food in there and they'd all eat it. We're like, holy cow, this is amazing. <laughs> That's <laughs> so awesome. It's just kind of gone through small degrees of change from then, but that was kind of the, 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 the quick learning curve that we went through for the first four or five years. So since you've done that, have other states taken your uh, your philosophy on the, the brine shrimp? A little bit. You know, a lot of them, they ask a lot of questions, but um, and they're very interested in it when we go to conferences. Um, but it's one of those situations where people kind of get stuck in their ways, too. <clears throat> so, you know, when you, we'll go and we'll talk to Michigan and they think it's really, really interesting, and they they do see the benefits in raising the amount of fish that we do for thirty thousand dollars worth of dry food, but their system's not broke. They get tax money, so they can spend seven hundred thousand dollars on buying minnows every year to raise their muskies. Yeah, they get, them, <laughs> they get them to the same size we do, and as a yearling, and they're very happy with their program. It's a great program. They're doing a great job up there, but they don't have the incentive to change to the dry food because they have the money to buy the minnows. Yeah, they have a lot more income coming in where you don't. Right, exactly. They just built a $14 million walleye-specific facility up there with tax money. Oh, that would be sweet. <laughs> no, <know, right? laughs> Do you ever think about moving, Jared? <laughs> <laughs> no, but for real, that that's awesome. And... Uh, do other states that you've talked to, do they stock at the same size that, that Pennsylvania is now? Everybody kind of does something different. Um, the ones, you know, kind of the leaders that I, you know, Pennsylvania has always been um, 
there's two ways you can look at it. If you, we always looked at numbers, and then we look at size. And Pennsylvania was always at the top of the numbers, you know. Yeah. So once we figured out how to convert them into dry food, you know, for the next five years after that, we were stocking about 100 to 120,000, you know, eight to nine inch fish every fall. We were super excited about that, you know, and that put us at the number one list there, you know. And then there was Michigan and Iowa are the next two major um, walleye or muskie raisers, you know, and they're usually in that 40 to 60,000 range of fall fingerlings, you know, the eight to nine inch range. Um, <clears throat> but size wise, we were, you know, we were usually down around four or five, you know, those guys out there feeding the minnows were getting them, you know, nine, 10 inches by fall. So that was, and that was our next, so that was, you know, getting back to your original question, it kind of ties in nice, is that was our next goal was now we're stocking seven to nine inch fish. We're doing lots of them. So we started seeing some, you know, some differences in these lakes, you know, we started seeing, um, getting some good feedback from the anglers, but nothing like what we were hoping for. Um, these fish, the goal was now the biologists, when we looked at the biologists, what they're asking for, we said, what do you guys want? And they said, we really need a 10 inch fish. They said a 10 inch fish is going to survive through the winter a lot better. It's going to get out of the size range of some of the bass, you know, it's just going to be, we want that to be the standard of what we're shooting for. So then we had a, you know, our next, our next goal was this, how do we get these fish an inch and a half bigger? And that came down to a lot of different studies with trying different densities in the tanks. What was, you now, know, during different periods of the year, you know, when they're young, when they're really crammed up and crowded, they eat a lot better than if they're spread out. If we put too many, you know, when they're, I'm talking when they're an inch to two inches long. If we put 10,000 fish in a 12,000 gallon tank, they don't eat at all. They don't have any competition. But if we put 12,000 of them in a 12,000 gallon tank and crowd them up into a small little area, um, they'll compete with each other. They're, that piece of food hits the floor and he wants to get it before his buddy does. So they, they're all just very aggressively eating. So it's just that time period of figuring out what density, what density of fish you need in that tank to get them to feed better. And once they get to about four or five inches, if you keep them crowded up like that, they'll stop eating and start eating each other because they're just too crowded and they're, they're starting to get a little bit territorial. And they're getting so to at be, that point, they're getting to be badasses. To like eight fish per gallon at a max in the wall they'll all spread out in the tank at that point you you can look at the tank and there's like a softball around every single fish like this is my area you stay in your area and at that density they'll eat very very well you know and then that area that that territorial area keeps growing from that point so as we go through the season we had to keep keep learning what density of fish in the tank gets them to eat the best and once we perfected that, we got them to 10 inches in the fall. And uh, another thing that helped with that, too, <clears throat> is right about just before we switched to the yearling program, um, like maybe two years before that, um, a drug company came out with a way for us to vaccinate the fish for columnaris. Columnaris is the most popular um, fish bacteria that's in Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania waters. It's very common. It's always out there. It's like a cold virus. It's always there. You don't get sick unless you're stressed. You know what I mean? But we're constantly breathing in the cold virus. This this bacteria is in all the waters of Pennsylvania. And it's it's actually what's responsible for a lot of crappy kills every year. 
you know, when, if the water warms up really fast and, you know, right as the crappies start to spawn, they'll get stressed out. They get infected with columnaris and you'll, you'll get a phone call. You'll see something in the newspaper. You know, there's hundreds of crappies floating in this one bay at this lake. You know, it's, that's because they got that bad bacteria. So that's something we have to worry about in the hatcheries too. And we, we fought that with the muskies for years by saying, never ever raise a muskie above 70 degrees. If we try raising it 72 degrees or 74 degrees, it was just so warm and it's a hatchery situation is already stressful for them. That that warm water with the stressful situation, the columnaris infections would happen. And then the fish don't eat for a couple of weeks while we try to treat them with antibiotics and, you know, we'll lose 10% of the fish or 20% of the fish. And it's just a bad scenario. So we never raise them more than 70 degrees. And it goes back to what I said before with that mathematical calculation. So we're getting as many calories as into them as we can, but we could only get so much growth out of them at 70 degrees. Well, then this company came out with this vaccine. We can introduce columnaris, a dead form of the virus, to the fish when they're young, and they'll start building antibodies to it. And now, all of a sudden, we could raise the fish at 76 degrees, and they didn't get columnaris infections. So then we're getting as many calories into them as we could at 76 degrees. And we started reaching that 10 inch and pushing the 10 and a half, 11 inches by fall. And all of a sudden, you know, we're having big parties. We're finally meeting our goal. We got the density thing down to get them to 10 inches. And we got the vaccine. We can raise them warmer. We're making 10 inches, no problem. Things are going great. We're starting to hear guys telling us the catch rates are going up. Things are, everything's going great, you know? And so then this all happened at the same time as the conversations we were talking about before with the destination waters. So then they started working on the new musky management plan and somebody suggested, you know, I don't even know how it came up. It just, it kind of just, it just all took off. Everybody had the same idea at the same time and nobody has credit for it. And, you know, it just kind of happened that they were writing the new musky management plan. And they said, okay, the 10 inch fish are starting to work really, really well. How are we going to make destination waters? And then they said, well, if 10-inch fish are working great, maybe 12 to 14-inch fish will work even better. Absolutely. So, and, uh, you know, the, the first time that was thought of, we didn't jump right into it. You know, we that's when we started, we decided, well, how can we test that? You know what I mean? So the first step we did was we held a bunch of, we started holding like 2,000 muskies through the winter. And then we picked a few waters, like Edinburgh Lake was one of them. And we would we would actually tag with a coated wire tag. We would tag the fish and put them in there in this, in this fall, like we normally would. Then we would hold some fish through the winter. We'd put tag in them in a different location and stock them in the spring. And we did that for like three years. And then when, we, when hatcheries would go in and catch those fish for the tiger muskie spawn a biologist was there wanting these things and determining which one survived better the fall fish or the spring fish and what we found out is that spring fish survived three times three times better three to one the ratio was three to one so what? they survived three times better than the fall stocked fish. why do you think so, that is and that was just a timing thing okay you know what i mean that wasn't even initially when the study was set up it was supposed to be a size comparison but they just don't grow over the winter. You know yeah. what I mean? We can give as many minnows as we want, just the water's cold and we can't afford to, we didn't want, we could have heat up the, enough water to raise 2000 fish through the winter and get them bigger. But if it worked, 
we couldn't do that for 30,000 fish. You know what I mean? We just couldn't afford to heat the water through the whole, through the winter for that, that many fish. Yeah, we're so not we Michigan. Didn't wanna, we didn't want to set our expectations so high that we couldn't reproduce it on a large scale. So we just kept them in the cold water. And then in the springtime, they were stocked. And it's just, a, it just makes sense. You know what I mean? You stock them in the spring. They don't have to go through a long, hard winter right away. They're going right into the water when everything else is in the lake is having babies. And there's tons of stuff to eat. Yeah, when the black crappies are spawning and the bluegills are spawning. Yeah, Yeah. it just makes perfect sense. It's a better time to spawn them. So that showed it was a three to one, you know, three times better survival rate just with the same size fish. So then we were like, okay, so that tells us this is going to work. And if we can get two to, th- you know, a couple more inches on these things, get them to 12 to 14 inches, we're really going to have something special here. So that's, you know, that's where it came from. So then we decided, you know, okay, we finally made it to where we can stock 10 inch fish in the fall, but now we're going to, we've, we've started eliminating waters where the muskies haven't been working. So we're, we're going to go from stocking, you know, 80,000 fingerlings in the fall to, you know, 35,000 yearlings how are we going to do that well we looked at at the you know and at the same time you know michigan and iowa were also thinking the exact same thing so we went to michigan and said you guys started this two years ago what have you seen what are your stocking rates you're using and they were using 0.75 fish per acre as a stocking rate so we said okay that's a good place that i need to start so we'll start there so when we looked at how many fish can we possibly raise up to that size as far as our, our density project projections go, you know, cause we, we don't want to crowd them up cause then they'll stop eating. We want to make sure that size growth is going to stay in there with everything we've learned in the past. Um, and it happened to work out that that 35,000 number worked out perfect for our densities and our raceways, but it also worked out that it was a nice amount that we could say the extra food and cost it's going to take us to, to, to hold them from the fall to the spring it's that number is the, the cost to raise the 35,000 yearlings and the, the 60 or 80,000 fingerlings is exactly the same. So we didn't increase, it didn't cost us anything to try this was the big selling point. Yeah. So we're still spending the exact same amount of money on the musky program, but it, we're, we're going to increase the, the survivability of the fish. And Makes that, it a no brainer, right? You know, if you go to somebody and say, well, we're going to increase the, the musky survivability, but it's going to be double double the cost. Everybody would have wrinkled their nose up. But if it's not going to cost anything, it's going to be better. Hey, why not? So it was, that was a big selling point. And that's going to up your destination fishing. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. And have you guys seen a bump in destination revenue since the musky uh, the musky program has taken effect? Or is well, there is there any way to tell that metric? Yeah, that's that's a little hard to tell. You know, that's one thing. That's where the, um, you know, that musky voluntary permit comes in is so important. You know, is that you know for us to raise thirty two thousand dollars this year just on people voluntarily giving us money towards a program that says a heck of a lot about the popularity of that program. You know, without if that permit didn't exist, it'd be very difficult to say okay we musky sale or license sales went up by 10%, but how many of those were musky anglers? How many of those were walleye anglers? Maybe just trout fishing was better. You know what I mean? So anybody could say anything they wanted. It'd be hard to disprove it. Yeah. But since we have that voluntary musky permit and it doubled in sales over the, from the first year to the second year. And, you know, 
every fishing report out there and guys are, you know, social media is a, a great tool because you're seeing guys talking about the muskie program all over where we've never seen that before. So just, it's more anecdotal than a measured amount, but anecdotally, I think everybody feels that the muskie program is at an apex of popularity right now. So that, because I think everybody's excited about that. Hey, and once again, like I said, or like Mark said earlier, we're sitting around a table right now that is covered in musky flies. You know what I mean? <laughs> and who in the hell wants to throw flies for muskies if there's not muskies in the water? You know yeah. what I mean? And you are doing that. You're putting the muskies in the water and making them readily available to us. <laughs> us yeah, assholes that want to do that. Too, like, <laughs> who would have thought the fish of 10,000 casts, guys would be willing to go fly fish for these things and have success? Exactly. Uh, well, the whole thing is, to me, <laughs> a four, you, even, even a 20-inch fish, These the people who want to catch musky or are after musky, that is a pleasure. Like that is a that's a, a grand fish for them. So it doesn't have to be a forty inch game. People love those fourteen inchers you put in. It, it, they they love them twice, really you know. Cool. Actually, the day that I I met you, Jared, and you kicked me out because we came in right as you guys were closing. <laughs> <laughs> I I showed you a couple pictures of my buddies that caught their first muskies from a local lake, and uh, they were you know. 20 inch fish and they, they were so happy they were full hard they're like oh these things are so cool and they're, right. they're hooked for life you know what i mean and it's because right. of the musky program yeah i saw that a lot this year on social media i know i, I follow the i'm on a raystown lake page for all things you know i've never fished raystown lake in my life but i like to keep tabs on everything i literally saw at least 50 people post on the race down page this year that they caught the first muskie ever. Like that's exciting. So I don't want to spot burn, but we don't fish the area. So, so nuts to it. You said you started stalking bald Eagle Creek. <laughs> <laughs> you, I'm joking, man. But, uh, um, what, what goes into a new river fishery to make it, um, uh, what makes you want to target that to start stocking it for the muskie program? Yeah, that one in particular is more um, regional based. You know, that's an area of the state that doesn't have a lot of inland lakes. So trying to find new areas to people can target muskies is a high priority. Um, and coming out of Sayers Reservoir, you know, that, that area um, – is already kind of seen as a warm water fishery and it's known to have really good warm water fishery habitat, you know, so that's, you know, it's got to have the right habitat to make the fishery successful, you know, um, and there's, a, there's other outflows that don't have that, you know, like you guys fish Mahoning re reservoir at all. Yes. You know, that reservoir is a really nice fishery, but the, the, the Creek below it, you know, before, between there and the Allegheny, there's like, no habitat in there they're, you know we can't get muskies to hold in there we, we stock it with them still you know we're trying we're kind of giving it to the last chance but uh, and there's certainly a population there that comes and goes from the allegheny but there's just not a lot of structure there to hold them that section of bald eagle creek is just perfect it's got tons of habitat for these muskies to thrive in so you know it's got to be the right scenario we're not going to throw um a new water on there just for the sake of doing it but um 
where it's, you know, it's the right situation where it's below a reservoir. It's a great warm water fishery. The habitat's there. It just makes sense, you know, and that was more of a, an idea of, you know, trying to target areas where our trout strongholds and we want the newspapers to write stories about muskies and that trout. And for the sake of that, that fishery, is there a lot of public access or where uh, people can get in and maybe do a day float and go catch a muskie? Does that have a, an effect on your want to stock that fishery? Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely another aspect of it. And that it, it was already a popular fishing spot. Um, there was tiger muskies that have come out of um, that water already, you know, in the past. And that was kind of brought up to us by some anglers that said, you know, in the past, we, you know, we've caught tiger muskies here. You know, we think they'll hold here. Is that something you would consider? And, you know, the biologist considered it and he said, hey, let's give it a shot. Cool deal, man. Well, hey, hey, Jared, we've had you on the phone for two hours. I'm not keeping you any longer. This is a Sunday night, and it's been thoroughly enjoying or enjoyable for all of us. Yeah, this is fun. Let's do it again. Yeah, absolutely, man. Hey, you said it, not me. <laughs> so, absolutely. This is fun. Hey, where can people go and check you out? Like, where where can people see you online? Where can people see what the progress of the Muskie uh, program is doing? Because I know you post on on uh, social media accounts, right? Yeah, you know, that's kind of um, kind of a hairy topic right now. <laughs> okay, well then never you know, mind. <laughs> we're trying to, um, you know, it's, it kind of got de- derailed a little bit. So the, the Fish and Boat Commission is doing a really nice job of tackling social media and doing more videos and stuff. And we really want to, we really want to focus um, people's attention towards the Fish and Boat Commission website and the Fish and Boat Commission um Uh, facebook pages and stuff um but just as that started getting really nice and ramped up covid hit and people were working from home it just got harder to get together and do videos and stuff like that so that's going to be the long-term goal you know and that's where people should go um i'm until then i'm probably going to still be putting stuff on my facebook page just to kind of here here's what we're doing today um but i'm trying not to do it as much as i was before because i don't want to take take away from the fish and boat commission sites either you know i'm not trying to steal the limelight or anything i just i think it's important for people to know what we're doing out there so um so is there is there still option to call in and potentially come in to the hatchery still right yeah right now we're still closed down for covid um but once we do open which i hope will be sometime mid to late summer you know once we're open absolutely come anytime you want Awesome. It's an awesome place to visit for anybody around here. And, and I think, you know, yeah, anybody the, abroad. The spillway being there, where be, you know, it's a nice family trip too. you know, bring the whole family up, stop and feed the carp and then come over to the hatchery and say, hi. yeah, go buy, go buy a bag of bread, feed the carp and then come <laughs> say hi to Jared. Oh yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So, Hey, thank you so much, Jared. This has been so much fun. Yeah, no problem. And um, hey, let let's definitely get together uh, sooner than later to do this again and talk yeah, about what's going great. on. Just let me know what's going on in the state of Pennsylvania. And now that I have <laughs> your phone number, I'm gonna drunk text you all the time. Every little bitty muskie <laughs> I catch. That sounds great. I love seeing it. <laughs> all righty, buddy. Hey, thank you so much. No problem. Talk to you later.
No, bro, it's not Pac. I know, but I like changes. <laughs> we might throw that on next. There you go. This is a little Bruce Hornsby. That's a good tune. Yeah, man. It's just the way it is. Oh, yeah. No, I picked up some old fly tying stuff. I'm, I like old fly tying stuff, mainly because it's free, but... <laughs> I got some it's got original. Some, it's uh, the OG. Believe me, listen. When I I like to read all the labels and little shit, you know, like even there's some Nishanic Creek sports stickers in there that you know my grandpa he was he was old school fly tire. I got tons of like Mustad 16s and all that little stuff now. So I got, um, definitely could tie that if I ever get there. But tons of feathers, all kind of weird shit. Just imagine, you know, you know how we start like substituting shit like, "Oh, this will work." Like, oh, they, this is gonna they've be good. done that forever, you know what I mean? Yeah. And don't think that like uh beads in the middle is a new thing for way, you know, that all that shit's been there and uh, your grandpa's grandpa did it. So, to see some of that old stuff now, I got a bunch of like hackles and all kind of different shit, some older tools. I like that. Got a new well, I haven't used it, but Vice, all that shit. So maybe somebody else could sit there. What kind of vice you get? Look shitty. I don't. I don't know. It's it's old. It's a spinning one. I haven't. I haven't grabbed it. Yet. It's over at my uncle's. But I got all the materials. Shit ton of there's, stuff. There's man. so much to be said about that OG stuff too. Oh no, it's you it know, came from everywhere. Like like now, look where fly tying stuff comes from. Yeah. Very few well, places. You know, like I was you know? I was reading a little article about from Kenny Abrams, and like he said, he goes, you know, I'm trying to look at if you if you're trying to get a fly of a certain length. The float perpendicular down, you've got to spread the back. You've got to take a short chain hook, like you were talking about. Take a short chain hook, spread the length out a little bit longer, spread the bucktail a little bit wider when you're doing that, so that you get the f- the, the actual feather itself to sit perpendicular. So that fly drops perpendicular in the column. So what does that do? It gives an actual bait fish action. So that f- that fish that fly that you have mm-hmm. sits in the column like it's an actual bait fish because it's all based off of and them guys look back and they look at all them actual patterns and how they're designed and how they're done because they're meant to do a reason there's a reason behind them oh, yeah, like you're the- saying so you take that fly and you you take the hook and you base the hook off of how you're going to put the bucktail and how you're going to put the feather and that fly sits in that column perfectly because of that there's reasons behind it and just so everyone knows, Kenny Abrams is the dude that made the flat wing, right? Kenny Abrams is the dude that made the flat wing. And let me so tell you, finding that, a, a, an illusions of fish. Watch that beer. It has been a, <laughs> it's empty. It has been a nightmare. What a book. But but it, it touches on what you're saying because you get back into them old school patterns. Are, you know, them guys, they did them for a reason because they knew what worked. And it oh, still yeah. works to this day. Yeah, no, I, I came across a bunch of old shit. Score. It actually made me sit down and tie a few things, so I like I like fucking around with my new shit. But there was a little chunk of purple bucktail in there, and this, it was vivid. It was like Easter egg purple. I'm like, ah, yeah, that could get used real quick. So tied up this little purple perch pattern. Got some barred feathers through the back, some orange and black, and then what else? Green, you know, for the perch. Some belly. The belly was a little bit orange and green, and the front I, I tried my best on a, a buford it was a buford dub, dub, yeah double o b-o-o boo well you say that sucks. but you know what you but know it, why you know oh, why no, kenny perch, abrams man. did you know why he did yellow and chartreuse mixed together because when the light hits it through the emittency of the water it it's turns it to blue oh no shit so then all of a sudden you have a fly that looks like it's lime green when it's down in the water and the light hits it it turns it to blue, blue. 
And guess what the fish are under the water? They're blue. So it depends on what you're looking at under the water. There's a lot to be said about what you're talking about right oh, there. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's money, man. Think I got a deep. I got a new new color to try. I like colors. I don't I don't I don't ever look past all our natural stuff, but I don't know. A buddy of mine, I'm not big on UV. I have never and I know it's getting to be a big thing, but so, you know, I love gear. I'm a collector and and this dude was like, "Look at these ripping wraps in my uh ice fishing box before we went up to Erie and, and he flicks his little blue light on him like oh, okay I see what's going on here I'm like those look like shit to me under the light because I'm not I'm not under at the all real light I'm not digging the color schemes but when you did that all that shit got put to the side I'm like well that's like a hot blue pink red like well, I'm not seeing the exact same lore as is what it seems so yeah, but them, now and that brings up a that's good new point. stuff. That's that, all new stuff, though. That is a new point, and that is new stuff. And, and yes, maybe it will work, but that brings up a point. Let's talk about where is UV light everywhere. Not right? only UV light, but does that bring up a thing? Is it necessary or is it proper silhouette in the presentation? Because let's say that okay, for the last thirty years, is people it not have, mandatory. People have caught fish off the same ways, but now all of a sudden you bring that into play and you catch fish, but people are still catching fish the other way. True. So is it eyes or no it, eyes, flash it, or no flash? Exactly. I mean, is it more or less the fact that it's proper presentation with a proper silhouette? True. Or is it the fact that UV works? Well, for thirty years, proper presentation silhouette worked. Now all of a sudden, UV comes into play and people think it's UV. Can't. It's just. It's a little icing on the cake. Exactly. Yeah. It's a preference. And it, so and then, does that bring in the fact that maybe that is confidence and maybe confidence makes you fish better? So so, so be it the fact. I think if you then, went out at night and did a little work with it and seen maybe some, because I think that might be where, where them differences are really going to come into play. Nighttime, uh, I'm not a fan of glow. I don't even think it works, but they sell... Glow lures by the bajillion. And the reason I state that is because I'm an advocate of black. People hate black because you can't see it in the water. But guess what black does? It perf- it, it, perf- it absolutely throws the silhouette. Oh, it blocks all so, light. You know? So no matter what it is, no matter what you look up, the silhouette is always there with black. I like black. I don't care if you can see the fly or not because if fish is the fly, you keep your rod tip in the water and you strip set into the fish. But at the end of the day, if you think UV makes you fish better because... You're going to have UV on your fly. So be it, whether it's because you fish it better, whether it's because your confidence, whether it is, so be it. Then go then fish with it. But at the end of the day, you could still accomplish the end results by fishing something different. But it depends on how you fish that pattern. It's all, all about the confidence, which you got to put time into something to build, which I don't have that in UV. I, like I said, I don't have that. Glow. I don't either. I tried the glow. Like, believe me, maybe it's. It's just a thing for other people or a gimmick, you know? I mean, I'm gonna lures try, are lures whether they're glowing or not, right? I'm going to try UV for the first time only because of the fact that hairline's out of all black. Flies are flies. So I'm going to have to use UV black. <laughs> and other than that, you know, at the end of the day is uh, if I'm musky fishing, I'm going to throw black first and foremost. If it's bright and sunny days, I'm going to flow black over red with silver flash. And that's always what I throw. And it's not because of the fact that I can see it better. You're going to throw a UV black now, and you're going to like it. Well, no. <laughs> some, somebody else's. My flies are already in my box. It's going to be somebody to like, else's. How do you mark them? How do you change the different? How I, do you know I, they're black? It, you're going to have to hit them all with the light. At the end of the day, to myself, I don't think it makes two shits of a difference. I think the fact of the matter is you have a silhouette. So when a fish looks up at the water, it's blocking the sunlight. Therefore, there's a silhouette. The sunlight hits the water. It provides a silhouette. 
the muskie can see the fish. They can see the bait fish. They see what it is. The closer they get, the silhouette's there. Everything's flash that's synthetic to me, damn near, is well, what and, I and think. Think about another thing, you know too. Is I mean? Let's say you throw a whole bunch of different colors in it, and it looks good. And you know what? And I'm going to go right back to Kenny Abrams because this guy, I've started to study, and I've started to look into what he does with stripers. Wait, can, okay. can, can, I, can I say something yeah. before you get into this? Yeah, absolutely. Because remember like three years ago when I told you guys, fish don't miss flies. Correct. You know, you guys are no, 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 Oh yeah, no, they're they're coming up. They're missing the fly. No, yeah. I, okay. I'm telling you, man. So we, let let's bring the tapes up. Hey, everyone, go back. Listen <laughs> bring, to the, bring listen the tapes to it. Up. So and, let and you get back to us and let us know who's right or wrong. Regardless, we'll, we'll find that because I do agree with you. Did fish don't miss a fly? Yeah, and they don't. And that's here's their why. job. That's their meal ticket. Exactly. And and we're gonna go back to like what he and I'm gonna bring up him up again because he had a podcast on the Saltwater's Edge. <coughs> Excuse me. And he said, you know, you, Wait, li- you listen to Saltwater's Edge, but you don't listen to our show. No, I don't listen to our show at all. <laughs> the only reason I listen to Saltwater Edge is because somebody said Kenny Abrams is on there, and I immediately tuned in. And so be it that I've listened to it three times. I have listened to it over and over because there's so much to be learned from that guy. I absolutely love the aesthetics of just pure bucktail, and that's what he understands. And that's what he fishes. And that's what he said. Fish don't miss a fly. Think about it as like a hot girl. You're coming up to her. You're coming up to her. She looks hot. She looks hot. And all of a sudden, she turns her head. And you're like, oh, my God. And you turn off. Same with a fly. They come up to it. They come up to it. They're ready to eat it. And then all of a sudden, they look at it. And they're like, oh, they turn off. They turn off. Because they, of, oh, my God. She has a dick? Or they turn off fly? because of two reasons. It's either too flashy or it's got too much in it. Meaning it's got too much feathers. It's I, got too much flash. I wish you much. were on the show last week with uh, uh, Russ Madden. Because he was like. There's a time and place for deer t- or deer fur. It's not all the time. Correct. Yeah, it's and not all the time. And that's 100%. Yeah. Yes. And and I know that's all you do is deer tail. And, and exactly. But, but there's a time and a place for other materials. Absolutely. And yeah. I, I won't disagree with that whatsoever. I'm an advocate of deer, of bucktail, because I love it, and I love just the simplicity, and, and I love how you can take it in so many different variations and perfect it. But that, with that being said, I personally believe that if I manipulate in different ways, I can find a way to catch a fish. But with that being said, there's always a time and place for it. So, like he said, there's you know, it's not always. There's a fly that you can make that'll always fit that agenda. But that's called the merged minnow. <laughs> it, it maybe it maybe it, may it will be. But the, so let's take a merged minnow that fits my mini. Let's take a small fly. You have a, a Thunder Creek or a Clouser. Let's take a bigger fly. You have a hollow. You have a bucktail deceiver. You have many different varieties of just bucktail. Yeah, but they're n- they're not the same as throwing a wrapped. Okay, so let's 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 hit on that. Or, let's hit on or that a, though. A swinging D or a game changer, but they're not the same. And I'm not going to disagree with you, but let's hit on and that. And they don't have the same. So let's take them. Let's they take don't have the same densities and buoyancies and swimming profiles. Okay, and, and I'm not going to disagree with that. But what I'm going to say is, you take my mini. And you take a Murdich, there's zero difference. Yeah, there's a there's zero. No, there there is a difference between where the head profile for one. One hundred percent because your your head isn't made of Vestas. 
But that's a murder. But <laughs> I'm just saying that no. the the density of the fly is totally different. Okay, and that may be. But then I'm, again, I'm not saying your fly doesn't outperform a murder. I'm just saying there is a difference in the and, fly and I'm not saying that anyway because murder has been proven for how many years. So I'm not going to disagree with it. It, it approves or not. But let's just say the fact that you take a murder minute with Estes and you take a mini, and you look at them too. They do the same thing in the water column. They pause. They hang. I no I and I'm I, asking no, and I'm not no, I'm not disagreeing I'm only asking no no I I'm this is where you're gonna love this go ahead your fly hangs better than a murdish minute does a murdish will kind of cut and sink okay your fly will cut and pause because it has the the deer hair head yep so it, like I said they all have the time and the place okay so where so then what you're saying is you think that 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 dye pattern where it dies down towards the bottom. That's where it kills, and it's killing itself, and it's dying down. That's where you get to eat. Sometimes, yes. And okay. sometimes your fly, the, the mini, will pause and smallmouth strike on the pause. Okay, we, so we know that. With that for, being said, do you think <laughs> maybe maybe let's take a mini minnow, where you take a minnow pattern, you just drop it down to four or five inches. So a minnow pattern with the eyes, with the, with the, with the, with the eyes UV. And not the not the deer hair Correct, head. with the UV. So then instead of it hovering in that pattern, or in, in that water column, it starts to head drop and it kills and it drops down like a murder will. Do you think that then in turn? But for what it is, just wrap Estes on a fucking hook. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm not saying mean? that. But I'm saying in you know correlation. I mean? <laughs> uh, yes, I do. But I'm saying in correlation. Do you yeah. think then in turn, does that cause the same reaction out of a fish that let's say that a murder does? I, I, I do think your min... The, the one with the, the slick back head with the eyes mm-hmm. will have the same swimming pattern as a murder would, where it would kick to the side and die and put the head down and kind of like go with the current. Whereas your mint, your mint, you have a mini and a minnow. Okay, the the one with the the bulk head. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. It, it will. Like, it'll it'll hover. It'll, it'll stay hover right there. In in moving water, it does it way better than it does it in yep. still water, and it will fucking hover. And that hover is the strike point for the smallmouth. You know, you strip, 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 little little boop, 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 and then pause, boop. And then that's when they hit. Yep. You know what I mean? Boop, 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 boop. Hit. I, I guess you got to pause for them to hit it on the pause. And, and again, I, and exactly. The, <laughs> and, the, and the only reason I'm asking that is because there is ways to manipulate bucktail in order to make it do what you need to do. But there is. you've got to figure out how to do it. And not only do you do that by manipulating the fly, but you do that by manipulating the line involved with it. So if you're looking for that action, you can also throw a full sink on there or a sinking line, a three five seven, rather than an intermediate or something like that. So then instead of the fly hovering there, it drops its head down and it brings it down into the column. And again, I'm not disagreeing by no stretch. I, I 100% agree with what you're saying. I'm just stating... I agree to disagree. I'm just stating that there is ways to take every single pattern that you take and you can manipulate it in order to do it with what you do. And the reason As I say that shot. is because instead of copying what everybody's doing out there, take that pattern and try it different. So why I say that is let's take a minnow or throw a little bit of fo- a foam in it. What's a foam going to do in a minnow right behind the eyes? It's going to hold it like a mini will. Take a mini and throw a little bit of dumbbells right behind the eyes. What's it going to do? As soon as you pause, it's going to head drop. 
There's ways to manipulate all this. Mm-hmm. So there's ways that you can take a fly and you can adjust your your whether it be your fly line or whether it be your fly. So rather than copying whatever it is out there, you can adjust that in order to incorporate it to how them fish are going to react to the different situations. Or you could also definitely copy the way Mark Sadati has done it. Oh, absolutely. And weight your flies to fish the way that you want it to in the, the specific um, water movement that See, like, it's going to be fished in. Yeah, absolutely. So like when I take a mini, what I'm doing with it is I'm doing like short little like strip, pop, 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 pop. And when I say pop, 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 I'm talking like I'm taking and I'm rolling my thumb down and I'm going it with inches, bam, 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 and I'm stopping. And I'm talking like three, four, five to seven inches. And what that does is that causes the tail to wake, 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 like a like a changer will. And that tail walks, and then it kicks sideways, and it turns sideways profile. So it hangs there in a the column. Now, what you're talking about is whenever that turns, it drops down. And that drop down will also, let's say like a bowfin. If that thing hangs in a column, a bowfin's really not going to come and hit it. But when it drops down and it starts diving like it's dead, a bowfin's going to come up and hit it like a ton of bricks. So you manipulate what you do with that pattern in order to adjust to the fish that you're fishing for. Speaking of that, I lost my, my game changer. I have no fucking... I showed it to oh, you. Oh, that's a shame. I showed it to you today, and I have no idea where the fuck it's I put it. It's in a better place now. <laughs> yeah, no. but you, you didn't <laughs> fish, so it can't be lost in I, the water. I swam it today. At the pond? No. I don't know how oh, we ended up on fish. there, but the end of the story is... But it swam good. <laughs> you can manipulate what that fly does based off of the line. But what I was getting at was Kenny Abrams and the way that he talks and the way that he does is, is, is like myself. When you ask me what are three things that are, that are crucial to fishing, three things, and they all start with an S. Oh, I thought they were going to start with bucktail. Sparser? Uh, beer, doesn't, beer doesn't start with an S. Um <laughs> Sparser, <laughs> swimmier, sparser, <Sexy>. slower, <laughs> smaller, smaller, sexier is a good one. Yes, uh-huh. sparser, slower, smaller, smarter. So if if you are not having an effective reaction to what you're fishing, go slower. Switch it up. Switch go, it up. Go smaller or go sparser. Sparser like old ladies' pubes. Yes, because at the end of the day, if it's a musky fly or not, look at the musky flies I tie. They're not overpacked. They're very sparse. Exactly. But at the end of the day, if you go... That's what makes your musky flies swim better than some of the other musky flies that we're seeing around today. And that's it. Sparser, slower, and smaller. Them three things will definitely adapt to fishing better. So if you're not having luck, try one of the three of them because I'm telling you one of the three of them is a reason you're not moving fish. Is Kenny Abrams still around? Yes, he is. He just did a podcast last week. I listened to it three times. Then there we go. Hey, you have a job. I need to get him on. You have a job, Mark. And I need to get his book (laughs) for a reasonably price because I have been looking for months. I've got the second book, but the second book don't mean shit if you don't have the first book, which I found out because the second book's only 20 bucks. Well, the (laughs) first book's a couple hundred. There's a reason why. But you know what I sat and looked at is, okay, we have a flat wing. Kenny Abrams designed a flat wing for saltwater fishing because it does a couple things. A, what it does is it holds a profile in a perpendicular manner. It doesn't go vertical, and it doesn't go up and down. It holds it like a bait fish would. So what I'm thinking of is, okay, let's look at a freshwater. There's a lot of things in freshwater. Red-nosed dace, all wives, suckers, minnows, everything. 
They all swim in a perpendicular manner. There's no reason why we need to jig them up and down other than certain times of periods of the year. So right now, we're trying to fish them flies in the water column, and you tell them, what is an, what is an original game changer? Let's think about that. What is an original game changer? It's a game changer. No. It's a feather. Because if you hold a feather like this, what does that feather do? How high are you? <laughs> For three and a half weeks, not at all. So let's take a feather. Now you, get, now you get to really pick my brain when that's not the case. So let's take a feather and let's hold it like my hand is perpendicular flat. You have the base of the feather here and a feather goes down flat and it goes to point towards the end. And you're holding it perpendicular. What's that feather do? It waves back and forth. So let's take like a fly I'm holding right here, and we're going to hold that. What's that feather do? You hold it back and forth. It swims like a game changer. So if you hold that fly perpendicular in the water column, that tail swims like a game changer. So if you are able to take bucktail and you are able to take feather, you're going to take a fly that is very, very light. It's very easy to cast. As soon as it hits the water, it cuts into the water column. It gets right into your fishing zone. It is right there, ready to fish right now. It doesn't drop already out of the game changer. It doesn't already. It doesn't drop out of the water column, and it hangs right there. And now, what does that feather do? It swims like this. It swims like it would. So all you need to do is keep it right in the face of the fly, right in the face of the fish. What's the fish going to do? It's going to eat it every freaking time. There's a time and a place for it. There is a time and a place. But what I'm saying is... I'm not going to say that's going to take the spot of a game changer. Match your, not, matching your but you haven't tried it. But stuff. you haven't tried it and yet. Mark, I've fished fucking those flies for my entire life until the game changer came around. You haven't well, well I'll show apparently. you the flies you used to fish, buddy. Because I've only fished these flies and I haven't fished game changers. And they work just as damn good. You, exactly. So, you haven't fished game changers. I have, but, but it's... But sparsely. But, but, but what I'm saying is. But what I'm saying is, there there's a time and a place for everything, and it's called college. It, but what I'm also <laughs> saying to that is, yes, you're correct. There's a time and a place for everything. But if you learn how to take what you have and, and manipulate it to what you're trying to do, it will always work. And Figure don't out. and don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to discredit what you're doing with the deer tail or deer hair. I'm not trying to discredit that one bit. I just I think there's a place for synthetics and doing uh, doing more with fly tying than just deer hair. You know what I mean? And like I said, I'm not discrediting what you do because you do great work and it's it's a work of art what you do, and it works and it catches fish. I just I don't know. Sometimes I need a, a creative outlet. Oh, and then I beat off to it. And, and, and again, <laughs> is that that is that the, the brush changers that you do? You beat off with those? Oh yeah, there, there is, is that nothing, why they're so big and fluffy. No, that's why they're so stiff. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that, and if that's the way you want to go it for like a splint, so be it. <laughs> Run down that realm. But what I'm saying is, is if you're not getting what you want out of it. It's not because of... It's not because of the material. It's because of what you're doing with the material. Exactly. Learn yeah. how to adjust accordingly to it. And it might not always be the fly. It might be the line. It might be the weight. It might be the way that you're fishing it. But there's a way to manipulate that same material and adjust it in three, four, five different manners in order to fish it accordingly. So what I'm saying is we can take what everybody else has revolutionized in other industries... And we can make it into ours, and we can make it very effective. I can take what saltwater guys are using and use it as freshwater flies. 
Because guess what? What they're using for saltwater flies is the same as an all-wife. It's the same as a shad. It's the same as any other minnow. All we need to do is learn how to manipulate it into our manner. Are you talking surf candies and stuff? No. I'm strictly talking the same damn thing. Flat wings. Oh, okay. You can take an all-wife. He's in love with the flat wing now. But but think about that. Take a little little all-wife. They're three, four inches. What is a better way to manipulate them? Yeah, a changer. Changer's a great way. But you're going to take how long to take a changer, or you can take it with bucktail, and you can take a quarter of the time and turn it into a flat wing, and it's going to do the same thing. Hollow fly, boom, you're done. But a hollow fly, hollow fly d- doesn't give the same profile Correct. in the water. Correct. You know I'm what talking I mean? about As a, a wee little minnow. Be- exactly. Yeah. I'm talking about a two to three inch all wife. You're not really going to get that out of a changer unless you tie a really, really small one, which in fact you're going to tie 45 minutes to tie a three inch changer. Where you can take an, a single feather flat wing, turn into an all-wive with just a little bit of sparse bucktail on the bottom, a couple stacks on the top with peacock earl, it's going to do the same thing, and it'll turn into an all-wive. So therefore, we can take a saltwater pattern, turn into a freshwater pattern. And yeah, a- anything from Bob Pop's books. Work. We we've seen them work on our hybrids and our oh, yeah. smallmouth. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So hey, we've been. We've been rolling like two and a half hours, Mark. Jace. I got to go fishing. Let's go. I, I, I got to go beat off, man. <laughs> it's fucking midnight turn. The walleye are everywhere all, on these lakes. Is that going to be with that stiff game changer thing you tie? <laughs> <laughs> so the nice thing it is... It looks like a fucking chimney sweep. <laughs> and and let's, let, let's look at that. You take, you take a flat wing, and you can just hover that thing right in front of their face, up and down, real slow, because guess what it's going to do? It's going to sink... In about a half an inch per second, it's going to hold right in front of their face, just like a fish will. So that fish sits there, it's going to hang right in front, and it's just going to slowly suspend. You can catch all the all the walleyes you want with them. That stuff in your hand is great material. It's not great body. Are girls going to use it? Because I already No, take did. it. Take it. I use some already, man. I don't care how great it is. I, I took, turned fucking cold to gold, goddammit. I took the pearl already. <laughs> But uh, no, that that stuff is great. But like it, it doesn't make like like no body bodies. To it. No, no. You know what no, I mean? You can throw it under some under like a, in a head or something. Throw yeah. it up yeah. or wrap it around a good lid on a head or something. Yeah. No, no, belly, it's not a good prop. Well, it's bellies super limp. Maybe oh, for really? like yeah. uh bellies on. You know what yeah. I mean? Flies or like two Th- this red right articulated here articulated flies. Is. Even bellies, little little bit of flash off the, the ass of them. I, I ain't gonna do much with it. But I'm gonna tie a couple up because trout season See, is coming. Like this. everybody, get their get your families, get all them kids out there because yeah. you know unless it's bad weather, let's make sure you know you get somebody to the water that doesn't always have the chance. So next week, uh, next Saturday, Mark's daughter's uh, camping out at my place. We're gonna have a a little kids weekend for March 27th. Youth day. Youth <laughs> My daughter's gonna fish with you while I go for bowfin. Exactly. <laughs> Youth mentored fishing day, Trout. March twenty seventh. And uh, I'm gonna take you're, this you're fly. I'm holding her. in my hand by forestry and fish, and I am going to catch a couple fish, and it's going to be destroyed. I'm gonna do send it. Him a picture. I of hope what it, it looks like completely decimated. I hope it's a bear hook by the time you come back next Sunday, Chad. I, you're not trying to re- recreate what we had when we were kids, right? No, the, the no, night before, no, as I'm, you mentioned last week. Uh, these kids will not be in their gutchies. <laughs> Unlike I was a cleaning house. millworms up and shit. 
Um, I am gonna spend the whole week tying spinners up for the for the kids though. So that, like Jay said, it's hard for kids to watch barbers if they can cast and reel. I recommended only if you want to catch the big one. Um, yeah, baby repella and. Go ahead and throw a split shot in front of it, because why them fish eat all the time? Like that guy we had on said, it don't matter what you throw in front of it. it might think it's like a, a pebble from the hatchery. And, exactly. And then eat that little fire tagger. Like Rippella. that guy we had on. Yeah, that guy. You know that guy that know no way more than we could ever know about fish? You mean Jared Sayers? Yeah, he knew it all, so kudos to that man. Hey, and next week, I'm going to be on the Empty Flask podcast. So if you guys want to check out me on another show. Oh, look at that. Empty flask. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to be talking about some barbecue and some fly fishing and all that happy I'll bullshit. be on the week after, I think. <laughs> Where's that? Sec- or first you're, week of April. You're in uh, Easter weekend. Yeah. Um. So, all right, man. Well, hey, tonight's show has been brought to you by Predator Fly Gear. Check them out, PredatorFlyGear.com. A-Rex Hooks. Check out Mo and the guys at A-Rex Hooks. Sims Fishing Products. (laughs) (laughs) Roll. Hey, keep them going. Tonight's show has been brought to you live from the Urban Fly Company studios. Check Mark out at urbanflycompany.com. Yeti, built for the wild. Why not fishing in their app, The Dock? Hey, please go check out our boy Ryan Evans at queencityguiding.com. Why not fishing? And they're at the dock.